0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to Spotify.com slash podcasters, Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately.
1: Technology is an intentional patterning of information, material, and energy to allow an organism to successfully adapt to its surrounding environment. Let me say that again, because it's, it's kind of a lot. A technology, the way I define it, and that, by the way, that also means that there are other organisms on this planet that have technologies. So think about it for a minute. We, we like to think technology is just a human thing, but no, a technology is an intentional patterning of energy, material, or information that an organism uses to enable it to better interface with and interact with its environment. Language is a technology. We're using the technology of language right
0: now. Welcome to DMP. Discover More podcast is a community where we strive to discover more about life through insightful and nuanced conversations with fellow students of life. Discover More is a sanctuary for seekers of curiosity and discomfort. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency this week. This is your host, Benoit Kim. Let's get this started. The guest of honor this week is Ellen Booker. Ellen is the founder of the Institute of Integrated Regenerative Design. currently acts as its executive director and lead instructor. He is the creator of the Integrated Regenerative Design Framework and the Biocompatible Design Standards. He of course is also a fellow student of life who embodies endless curiosity. With a degree in electrical engineering and formal permaculture design certification, Ellen has over 30 years of experiences in engineering and 20 years in sustainable and regenerative design. However, this is just the tip of his experiential expert. With hundreds of nights spent in the field, Ellen also teaches wilderness survival, tracking, bird language, primitive fire making, and wild crafting. As a result of studying herbal medicine for nearly 20 years, Ellen also emphasizes how the proper use of real food and nourishing herbs can help build and rebuild a foundation for lasting health. In short, I need Ellen as my partner on any camping trips or wilderness-related activities moving forward. Some of his notable life experiences include 40 years of practicing and instructing various martial arts, being a trained classical pianist and composer, and leads many other national cross-organizational training. Ellen currently resides in Alabama, dedicating his life to reimagining the regenerative health and permaculture landscape in America and international level. You can connect with Ellen on LinkedIn at Ellen Booker, B-O-O-K-E-R, and visit the official website for Institute of Integrated Regenerative Design at i2rd.co. You can check out all the upcoming projects, which includes his forthcoming college textbook, observation for design, which teaches the practical skills of observation for professional designers and many more on his website. Ellen, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, and thank you for having me.
0: So for someone listening in of your really rich and vast life, whether it's personal life, professional life, or your intersecting and diverging interest. I can imagine some people asking like, how can I deal with all these things I want to do? I have all these diverging interests. I have all these things pulling me into different directions. And to that, of course, I would say the themes that I'm sensing from your introductions of saying yes to the right opportunities, but also saying no to many, that's distracting and pulling your energies in a negative way. In addition to the theme of seeking discomfort and endless curiosity. So what do you think about those?
1: Well, when people ask me how I managed to get a lot done, I think I, I tell them my, my first secret is I do not have a television. And, uh, of course, for the younger generation, I think the maybe another way of putting it is I don't have a Netflix uh, account. <laughs> um, I, I'm very mindful about the fact that you know I have a limited amount of time, and so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to avoid things that basically just have me in a passive non-thinking, you know, consuming mode, a little more mindful about how to use my life energy to engage and be active and creative.
0: Yeah, we sort of touched about offline talks about a lot of the things that society does not talk about is energy allocations or energy management. People only talk about time or resources or money. But I do think that what dictates all those things are energy, how we allocate it, how we reallocate it, how we preserve it. So why do you think that being mindful in life, especially facing certain dilemma or professional pivotal points, why do you think being mindful in life really, really matters into how you allocate your energy?
1: It's become a little bit of a cliche these days, but it, it, a particular thought, but it was shared with me when I was much younger and it, it hit me which was talking to somebody who uh, was a kind of a life coach and and coached executives and so forth. He was talking about having them go off and do um, sort of a annual retreat to think about what they wanted to do and to sort of prioritize over the next year, the next five years and the next 10 years. And he'd been doing that for quite some good time. And uh, he said that um, what he realized after having worked with a good number of executives was They tended to drastically overestimate what they could get done in one year and drastically underestimate what they could get done in 10 years. And I found that to be very, very true. Being mindful about how you're spending your energy, but also being willing to play the long game with that and realize that some of the larger things that you may want to accomplish that are going to be the most meaningful and the most uh, lasting are probably going to be multi-year and possibly even multi-decade pursuits. Uh, they're going to be things that, um, unfold and deepen over time. And so you can't have the fast food mentality if you, if you want to do things that I think really build and are lasting and are deep and transformative.
0: As a veteran, one thing the army that we used to talk about is you always want to seek out the path of least resistance. However, when you're going through a hostile or hostage environment and conditions that is very much true because you don't want to sprint into with a formation into a rain of fire so to speak but i think in life oftentimes we should tackle the path of most resistance because it's in those pain teachers and quote-unquote suffering and down seasons of life i think we grow the most so in that sense go back to what you just said earlier non-thinking life navigating life in this non-thinking way how would you define what critical thinking is?
1: There is a certain level of what I would call metacognition that goes into the process, right? And when we think about it, we are mammals with very large brains. (laughs) And, uh, that means physiologically our brain uses a huge amount of energy. If you start looking at like, you know, our, our energy load metabolically from our body, uh, our brain takes a huge amount of energy. And as a result, Um, a survival mechanism that we have is looking for cheats and shortcuts to allow us to get by without expending an undue amount of mental energy for everything. And we have a lot of social shortcuts for that. We have a lot of other survival shortcuts for that the way our brain operates. It makes an awful lot of sense when you are surviving around the edge and you just can't quite get enough calories to be able to feed that big brain and keep it moving. But. that's not a a problem that that most Americans have these days. So we have this tendency, if we just go on autopilot, to let our brain fall back into, you know, ruts and thinking shortcuts and modes of thinking that are familiar, that don't take much energy, that don't take much thought, literally because it's a survival instinct our body has uh, over time. So it takes a little bit of what I would call metacognition, that, that thinking about how you're thinking, thinking about how you're engaging with life, stepping back a little bit and looking at it and being very deliberate about, you know, how am I going to, what am I, what am I doing? Am I, am I just sitting and being passive and letting life just go by in, in a uh, receiving only mode, or am I thinking about what I want to do, where I want to go? and making that conscious effort to move into you know directing your own path instead of just letting life happen to you almost
0: yeah i agree i think the best definition i've heard about critical thinking is thinking about thinking and as you Mm -hmm. said meta cognitively you want to be aware of your thoughts your emotions different triggers different stimuli so you don't have to react through life which is what a lot of people do without some sort of a mindfulness practices and I had a,
1: a mathematics professor in, in a graduate math course that, um, was a, a Russian mathematician. He would, uh, get to talking about the whole cognitive process of mathematics. And one day he said, he said, you know, that good mathematicians actually think in analogies, but the great mathematicians see the analogies between the analogies. And he was directly looking at how metacognition and the ability to see what I call isomorphisms, which is, you know, iso means the same and morph means shape. We tend to think in schema. We tend to look at and create mental maps of things. This is how we build understanding. You know, shallow understanding oftentimes is procedure. I know how to, you know, do a thing just by pushing the buttons and making it happen. I've memorized the procedure, but that doesn't entail a lot of understanding, deeper understanding of a thing involves going in, digging in and building a mental map or a schema of how it works, where you understand how the parts interrelate, how their dynamics are and so forth. And once you do the work of building one mental map, what you start realizing is that the world tends to have a lot of other maps of a very similar shape. Natural systems, for example, tend to Um, operate off of a few basic generative uh, rules and so forth. So when you've learned one part of a map, then a lot of times you'll find that you can go over and you start trying to learn a new part of the map. You realize, whoa, this looks very familiar. And you can use that isomorphism where the patterning that you've already learned, you can take it and apply it into a new situation and realize that by learning how it differs slightly, that you can very quickly move into a pretty good understanding of that new thing. So one of the things I've seen from a lot of my teachers that are really good at uh, an an area in depth is all of them very different uh, topics have all said in learning a complex, difficult thing, start with one thing first. So when I started learning tracking, my tracking instructor said, go track one animal and learn it. Learn it really, really well. Learn its patterns, its energy, so where you can see what it's doing, right? When I started studying herbal medicine, the herbalist that I was working with said, learn one plant very, very well. Learn everything about it. Spend a year with it. Because if you go in the door and be like, oh, well, i got, you know, we'll start learning 50 different herbs. Then you're scattered all over the place. But if you go in and you learn about the map of say one herb, dandelion, you pick dandelion, which is an amazing herbal medicine. Most people have no idea that it has so many different medicinal uh, and health properties to it. You can spend a year with that plant and you can learn and you can create this very deep map of how it, you know, what it is and its personality and how it works and so forth. Well, then when you go to your second herb, guess what? It goes so much faster because you'll start seeing its isomorphisms. And then your third goes even faster. And you'll find that you can reach a level of competency, deep competency, much faster that way than if you tried studying a dozen all at the same time. You know, that same pattern seems to pop up uh, in a lot of fields of learning. Go deep and learn one map and then use your understanding of that map because you're gonna see that it pops up over and over and over again. And I think that's, that's been very good advice for how to gain mastery in a topic, um, without getting frustrated.
0: Yeah. That reminds me of the donkey fable, right? The story of don't be a donkey. Like there is a donkey and the donkey is grappling with hunger and thirst, and there's a carrot to the donkey's left side. And there's a pond to the donkey's right side, but then the donkey ended up dying of thirst and hunger because donkey just kept going back and forth as, Oh, I want the carrot and the water. What donkey should have done is get the carrot and then go to the pond. And of course, as you said, we are the mammals with the largest brains. We're not donkeys. However, what would you say to people that's under so much pressure, immense pressure in this day and age? Everything's about instant gratification. Everything's about showcasing what you've done. Because correct me if I'm wrong, the theme and the thread I'm sensing from what you just said is we need to slow down to tap into that mastery. right? To really get deep into it. And then you can hop the fence or change your lanes. So uh, do you have any thoughts about how can we slow down in the society where we glorify fasting or hastening up or fasting up everything?
1: Yeah, I think just to put it pretty succinctly, it's been my experience that if you chase instant gratification, that pretty much everything you're going to grab a hold of is pretty hollow and shallow. There's a market, especially in Western culture for instant gratification. And a lot of people out there are trying to sell you something that you know, will come off as, as instant. Uh, Those things tend to be pretty cheap. They tend to leave you immediately looking for the next uh, bit of instant gratification. It's, it's kind of a, if you, if you get into a habit of of just chasing instant gratification, I think you just kind of get, uh, into the habit of, um, well, a friend of mine and I joke about the internet being full of shiny squirrels, (laughs) um, squirrels, of course, you know, like, you know, chasing squirrels, but also, Ooh, shiny. You can waste your life chasing shiny squirrels that you'll never catch. And this, this whole thing of just, you know, instant gratification and shallow engagement with thing after thing after thing is something that our modern culture and our modern technologies have enabled you can chase an infinite number of shiny squirrels on the internet. And there'll be people who are trying to monetize you as you do so. <laughs> um, and therefore they'll actually design the experience to be addictive. And so in some ways we have people who've grown up in this melu of the internet in which you have PhDs in psychology out there figuring out how to make this process of chasing the shiny squirrels addictive. And then you wonder why in the world it is that with a set of technologies that are already a bit addictive at the same moment that they are also allow for uh, shallow engagement across you know, a, a wide breadth, right? You can engage across a huge breadth, very shallowly, very, very quickly, and they make it very easy to dance across the surface. You wonder why, you know, people kind of wake up and go, whoa, what's going on? Well, it's it's because a lot of that engages with the way that the human mind works. That a lot of our lower limbic system responses and so forth to stimuli were really developed to keep us alive in a natural setting, especially like say in you know the African Serengeti, where there are hundreds hundred species that can kill you. And so there are things that our brain does, like orienting to novelty. Well, if you're on the landscape and something new pops up, you better pay attention to it because it might kill you or eat you. So our brain has a very deep built-in survival instinct to orient to novelty. And so we can absolutely stimulate that as part of, you know, building an interface on a cell phone or on, on any of the internet apps or whatever, and set that up so that uh, we are stimulating that and keeping you engaged almost reflexively. You aren't thinking about it anymore. You are just continue engagement. And yes, the people who are creating interfaces to Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and so forth, they know about this and they use that. It's the way they keep their audience engaged. So what they're doing is they're actively keeping people engaged in what I would call shallow, intermediated experiences. And when I say intermediated, I mean... That they're, that they are keeping that person stuck in a mode where there's a technology filter between them and real life. There's a fundamental difference between watching a hundred YouTube videos about climbing a mountain and going out and climbing the mountain yourself. <laughs> and yes, YouTube's another one of those interfaces where boy, they've got it dialed in. You know, if you let yourself get sucked into the YouTube vortex, you can, you know, sort of emerge three hours later going what just happened you know what did i just do it's a reason for that it um, is working with your psychology so if you're not being conscious of that and how these platforms are actively exploiting you in order to make money quite honestly then you can get sucked into that and um wake up a little bit later and 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 wonder why um, everything that you've been doing feels shallow.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I've heard this. A lot of people have qualms and they talk a smack about algorithms. Like, oh, it's an algorithm's fault. And a mm-hmm. tech friend of mine said this so eloquently. He said, algorithms are just encoded opinions. At the same mm-hmm. time, to your points, that is still under the container of the specific design that is meant to contain and confine and maintain your attention right because attention is the biggest commodity nowadays and i was talking to a friend about meta data and metadata farming about how for example for dating apps if it's tinder hinge bumble any third parties can legally purchase your metadata like your zip code yep. or their locations of course not sensitive right. data but based on that you can purchase a zip code for 150 dollars based on some of your communication on the bumble app or any dating apps and based on yes. that they can extract and create ways to monetize that accordingly and as you said it's not a it's a very lopsided competition because on the consumer's point of view we are not equipped even if you're PhD even if you're a doctorate of psychology even if you're highly educated you cannot compete with the highest level of talent and pool and resources and technology that's very interesting. I want you know, to go ahead.
1: Well, one of the one of the pieces in my background is when I got out and um, and graduated from engineering school, was that I started working on this thing that was brand new called the internet. Um, kind of dates me a little bit. You know, when I first connected it to the thing, it wasn't actually called the internet. It was called ARPANET. So for some of the if you have older listeners, they that may that may date. It was back in the nineteen eighties. The first time I actually connected. And I got out with, you know, and started working on uh, digital telecommunication and what now is called cloud computing. And um, so I actually have quite a deep background in understanding how that technology works. And the data mining to me is very, very interesting. I've been in the room when we've had people from the big tech companies like Microsoft and Google and so forth, and they are promoting their AI platforms and the tools that they have for deep data mining. It's interesting because what will happen is, I I mean, I I had a conversation with um, a group of their engineers, including one of them, engineering managers of one of these big companies, I won't name them directly, but I was listening to everything they were talking about. And I said, well, it's, you know, hold on a second, I have a question, right? Said, I can purchase, these tools and I can use them for all these different kinds of data mining activities. And they probably said, yes, absolutely. And I said, well, okay. I can see immediately how I could purchase this data and that data and I could data mine, I could de-anonymize these people by using this deep learning. And I can determine all these things about them and so forth. How do I get prior informed consent from all these people Do, do you know, to, to do that with their data, right? to mine and extract their data, and then to leverage that against them. What do you feel is your ethical responsibility to human beings that you are creating tools and selling them that let people do this? You know what they said? They said, wow, nobody's ever asked us that question before, which I found really fascinating. I was like, well, okay, what's your answer? And they were like, we don't know. What I can tell you is that we've gotten to that point and I know this is a whole different conversation. I just want to kind of surface it because I think it's an important conversation for us as human beings to have, right? Um, A week ago, I was on one computer in a private browsing window on YouTube looking up a video that I needed to see on vitrified clay pipes for a regenerative project I'm working on. And the reason I was looking at that is because in a particular application, we were trying not to have microplastics and mesoplastic contamination going into the environment, right, and it's like, well, what can we use? Well, in this particular case, vitrified clay pipe is a natural material that will naturally biodegrade, and not have all these things, so I'm looking at that. And what was interesting is, given the search I did on YouTube, one of the things that popped up with clay was pottery clay So I got some videos suggested on potting wheels and throwing pottery. So I'm on YouTube, not logged in. I don't even have a YouTube account right on a computer with in a separate browser that I use for everything else. And then about once a week, I do get on my Facebook and look at uh, on my phone on an app. So different device, right? Facebook. So now we're talking meta, not Google. And ten minutes later, I'm looking on that because I'm part of several groups that post events and so forth, regenerative design events and so forth. Guess what I see in the advertising stream on Facebook ten minutes later? Clay pipes. Throwing clay pottery. Never seen it before on my Facebook newsfeed. I have a very carefully curated Facebook news uh, newsfeed. I don't post on Facebook any personal information. I just use it because there's groups and so forth. And here we are, and I'm sitting here, even me with the expertise I have in digital telecommunications, having to stop and try to figure out how an advertiser pulled viewing information off of a non-logged in YouTube video from Google associated it with probably one email address that cross associated with the email address I used for Facebook and then somehow went over and pushed advertising into Meta um, Facebook app on a completely different device. This is the kind of data mining that is happening in ubiquitous and I'm sure this story surprises no one. It asks for me having done this and worked in this space now for over three decades, you know, what does this mean to us as human beings? What does it mean that we now are living in a situation in which we have these algorithms? Some of these algorithms are intentionally programmed, and some are used machine learning to actually derive an algorithm that uses, quote, machine learning, artificial intelligence to basically automatically train towards a goal? Okay, both of those things. But both of those things are now watching everything we do gathering huge amounts of data and metadata about us and cross correlating it. And cross correlating it very interestingly to extract information that oftentimes we don't even know about ourselves, which is fascinating to me. The last story I'll tell on this whole thing was about the a couple of years ago, father calling Target and being irate with them because they were mailing his 16 year old daughter uh, information about, um, being pregnant, like advertisements for expectant mothers, right? He's like, my, my daughter is 16. Why are you sending her this you know, stuff on, um, for expectant mothers and so on and so forth. And his daughter actually realized what was going on and came in and said, um, dad, sorry, but I gotta tell you something. That's how he found out his daughter was pregnant. What had happened was deep data mining was that Target had machine learning that realized that when a female become pregnant, they would show certain patterns of change in their browsing habits and in things that they were looking at online. And they had actually figured out how to, with a fairly high degree of accuracy predict when, um, someone had just become pregnant. And so they were using that information to send out targeted advertising. In that particular case, this exposed that that was exactly what was happening. So here we have target knowing something about a 16 year old that, uh, the parents don't even know. To me, it, it asks a lot of very interesting questions about how we as a culture and society deal with this emerging phenomenon and how we deal with the fact that we have created companies where their legal obligation is to maximize shareholder profit, and then we've given them these tools. There is very little ethical constraint on how they're using those tools, provided that they maximize shareholder profit. What is do, what is that doing to us as a culture? What is that doing to us as individual human beings? What is that doing to humans and their psychological health and their resilience as a human being? All these things I think are, are fascinating questions to me, are things I think about. Because I kind of you know, have a lot of time spent in the telecommunications and the internet industry.
0: Yeah, I really like to also urge the listeners to take a moment and just, like I said, utilize critical thinking and just yeah. examine some of your current technological applications in your own life. Because mm-hmm. what Alan just alluded to is these large corp and tech companies have the ability to extract paper trails on a digital meta level without the permission of the p- beholders who are leaving these paper trolls behind. But on a more positive note, maybe it's not positive, but if you were to purchase a flight ticket to anywhere, right? if you were to open up an incognito tab on the side and you do a price comparison within, I would say five to 10 minutes, however long it takes for machine learning to encode that metadata across the servers, you will see immediately a price reduction on the incognito Page versus on Google Chrome or Fox, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. So that's a very simple manifestations of what Alan alluded to, and of course he is an expert on this topic. So Alan, yeah. I want to stay on this train.
1: Yeah, I was just going to make a comment to I me. Mean, it's very interesting. This is that you know when you start looking at this, uh, it's it's really easy when you start thinking about you know, metadata extraction and so forth to go looking for the bad guy, to go look for the person who's trying to, you know, figure out how to be evil and make money by, by doing all these things in reality, what you find is that there's a lot of people who in their particular, you know, area, like the folks, if you go talk to folks at YouTube, you can talk to the folks at meta or whatever they are in their space thinking, wow, we're producing really beautiful, powerful tools to enable people it can be challenging to get them to back up a couple steps and say, "Wait, what you are doing is actually part of a much wider ecosystem. That that ecosystem, when you take it as a whole, it exhibits emergent properties that were never intended by the individual, you know, um, the individual companies. For example, when you put a profit motive on it, and then you allow for uh, it to iterate, that is for different companies to look at and realize how they can interact, you're gonna get emergent properties. That is things you never expected and you probably wouldn't have predicted if you went and looked at the individual PC parts. So yes, I do have some um, ethical questions for people who are working in data mining and so on and so forth. I think they need to be addressed. But I also realized that uh, there are folks that they, they went into the tech industry, they went into creating some of these platforms with genuinely uh, good intentions of helping people. And then I think sometimes later they kind of wake up and go, whoa, wait a minute, we've built a part of a much larger ecosystem that has a life of its own, that has emergent properties, some of which are good and some of which are maybe neutral and some of which are, are problematic. And because they're all emergent, there's no one person or group that has the capability of addressing them uh they come out from the interplay between a lot of different uh, a lot of different components
0: yeah it's also a cultural effect because when we look at the totality or the monstrosity of a culture it's very overwhelming and daunting but when you yeah. start dissecting that oh culture is comprised of individual pieces of decision makers and mm-hmm. this is the same thing for systematic level for governments. When we think about the government, what does that mean? Is it the president? Is it the judicial branch? Is it the Congress? But the government's also comprised of individual decision makers that create Mm -hmm. this collective entity. And like you said, I think it's really important for people to discern and separate so it's not overwhelming for us. And at the same time, like you said, I do believe that technology is beautiful. But when it's such a powerful advancement in only 20 years, that's nothing right in terms Mm -hmm. of a timeline. I think we do have to once again utilize critical thinking and examine these technological implications in our lives. And what does it mean to us? And that's what the nuances are just asking one more question and just get your gears moving. We don't have all the answers, but hopefully through these conversations, people can have more talking points or thinking points. So to that point, I want to stay in this train for a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Ellen, I think your background is fascinating and not to compare you with Steve jobs, but he was the first mainstream innovator that combined and married liberal arts and technology. For you, you're similarly marrying liberal, not liberal arts, you're marrying technology and nature and holistic health. Mm -hmm. In these mile long introduction I shared earlier, you have a lot of experiences in herbal medicine and holistic health, uh, permaculture, sustainability. How do you see yourself fitting in, in this fascinating intersection between technology because technology is always going to be prevalent more. So it's becoming more and more pervasive, more and more ubiquitous, right? So the nature components, the sustainability component are shrinking as we move forward on a societal level. So how do you see yourself fitting in into this very complex puzzle?
1: I think I've got to address a couple of like different piece parts to get to an answer. The first thing is how do we define technology? And when I teach the Integrated Return to Design uh, material, one of the things I, I ask that, cause we're, we're talking about, I'm talking to technologists and people who are designing technologies. What is technology? Technology is an intentional patterning of information, material, and energy to allow an organism to successfully adapt to its surrounding environment. Let me say that again, cause it's, it's kind of a lot. That technology, the way I define it, and that, by the way, that also means that there are other organisms on this planet that have technologies. So think about it for a minute. We, we like to think technology is just a human thing, but no, a technology is an intentional patterning of energy material or information that an organism uses to enable it to better interface with and interact with its environment. Language is a technology we're using the technology of language right now, but you could look at it and a squirrel has a technology of a squirrel's nest to allow it to, uh, you know, to survive and to have a place to rear a young and so forth. That's a, that's a piece of squirrel technology. And so human beings have always had technology. It is that, um, our culture and the way our cultures are, is, um, created has basically led us down a series of paths of inquiry to create deeper knowledge and understanding of certain ways in which nature works that have allowed us to create increasingly more elaborate technologies. And interestingly, because technologies are something that we use to interface between us and the natural world, they've also had a tendency as we become ever more elaborate, we've, inten- we've, we've seemed to almost cocoon ourselves in our technology, and have this technological bubble around us that isolates us from direct, unintermediated contact with the rest of the natural world. And that has a lot of profound implications for how we as a biological organism exist and how we as a social biological organism exist. So I gotta back up and ask another question. Well, what is culture then? Culture, in the way I think about it, is a set of shared, metaphors and narratives that a group of people hold that allow them to share enough of a worldview that they can relate to each other in a way that allows them to have a cooperative existence, allows them to work together, have a social organization that has coherence, and as a result, actually achieve things that no individual by themselves could achieve. So the idea of culture, the purpose of culture is to connect human beings together into groups that have a form of social cohesion so that cohesive, cooperative action can emerge. So, as we've gone forward, and our cultures have gone, different cultures emerge and exist in different parts of the world and in different people groups around the world. One of the things that's happened is that a a particular set of viewpoints, stories, narratives, metaphors have emerged that have been um, kind of colonizing metaphors and colonizing. what I mean by that is they have a tendency to go out and overpower uh, and displace other ways of being and other ways of thinking. And one of those is based around a very f- fundamental metaphor of nature as machine that came out of, well, started all the way back with Plato. I won't get into all this is something I actually unpack again when I teach in detail, because it's critical to understand this. We can't understand how we're creating technology today, why our technologies are creating the trouble they are and how to how to like go in a different direction until we dig all the way down to the bottom of this. And the reason is it's our framing metaphors or framing stories that create the way that we investigate, think about, tell stories about the world that frames what technologies we actually create. What do we, you know, what do we create? What do we not create? What do we prioritize and so forth? We have to come all the way down to it. We realize that we've gotten that the modern world with its scientific worldview or what we call scientism has emerged out of something that came out of Western civilization, starting with Plato and coming all the way down, but really started to get steam, uh, with around the time of Rene Descartes and Isaac Newton, what's now become called the Cartesian Newtonian paradigm, Cartesian coming from the Latinization of Rene Descartes name. And of course, Newton being Sir Isaac Newton with this idea of nature is a machine that the universe is a machine. And we like that as human beings because it lets us take and simplify reality down to something that's a little more manageable. So the modern reductionist science started to grow out of this idea coming from Descartes and um, Newton, that the way to ask questions about the universe we're in was to see ourselves as a disembodied intelligence that could objectively look at the universe. And I think, you know, we could get into whether objective is possible. Actually it's not, but we you know, they could step, stand back and objectively look at the universe and ask questions about it. And then, okay, if you can do that, well, how do we ask questions? Oh, well, we are going to model it in our brain as a machine. And the way that you understand the machine, if it's complicated, is you take it apart into sub-assemblies and you study the sub-assembly, right? If that's too complicated, take it down into even smaller parts. And then eventually if you understand all the PC parts, then you understand the machine. That's the theory, right? And that works for simple machines. And it even works for what we would call technically complicated machines, like a car is a complicated machine. And for a long time, this was the model that we used for inquiry, scientific inquiry about the universe model biology as a machine model human behavior as a machine model societies as machines that are complicated but still understandable by studying the reductive parts so what we would call a reductionist system of inquiry and for a long time our technologies were built on that and our um, and much of our science was built on that there were individual scientists that came along and tried to challenge that as the underlying metaphor nature as machine because they felt that that was not the right way of going, but they basically got marginalized because it turned out that nature as machine was a metaphor that drove reductionist inquiry, and it made a huge amount of progress in understanding certain parts of the universe. There are parts of the universe that uh, it turns out you can learn a lot about by looking at it reductively, but this completely marginalized many other ways of knowing and ways of being in other non-Western cultures that took, um, the view that the universe was complex, not just complicated, but complex. So what's the difference between complicated and complex? Well, as I said, with a complicated thing, you can actually understand it like a car, you can understand a car by breaking it down into its sub assemblies. And if, if the car, you know, if the. If the fuel injection system is too complicated, you can even like get down and study the components of it until you can understand it. And when you get done, you can have a pretty good understanding of how the car works. So the theory was, well, if that's the case, then we should be able to take a um, bacteria and do the same thing. The bacteria is just a, a complicated machine that has parts and you can go all the way down. Well, it turns out that there's something fundamentally different about life than a machine. Have you ever seen a machine actually like build itself? Not yet. Like actually go out and gather everything it needs and then like put itself together and assemble itself and then um, continue to regenerate and repair itself as it operates? No, th- there's actually some very fundamental characteristics of this regenerative system we call life that are fundamentally different than the machine. There is this thing in, uh, when we start talking about uh, life system processes one of the attributes is what's called autopoiesis, which basically means self-making. We say that life, basically a living organism exists within a boundary of its own creation and self-organizes, self-builds, self-replicates, self-regenerates inside of that boundary. In order to do that, complicated doesn't actually work. You actually have to have a, a very complex network of interrelationships that are nonlinear dynamic and when you get to nonlinear dynamic networks of interrelationships happening at the scale we're talking about, it stops being complicated and it goes into the realm of being complex, which means that its behavior is no longer predictable. Yeah, it may stay within certain bounds and envelopes at certain times, but it starts to be to to give you all these complex behaviors emergent behaviors that aren't at all predictable based upon analyzing the components. You put the components back together and let them all interrelate. Now all sorts of behaviors emerge that you never would have guessed at by just looking at the components. In other words, the reductionist method of inquiry lets us learn a lot, but it gives us a very skewed view of reality because it only looks at the parts that are understandable with reductionist inquiry. In other words, it understands the thing by taking it apart, not by putting it together and watching the whole process and watching the emergent properties. And life is like that. It's the reason that life can be regenerative. A machine is degenerative. Your car will run down. It will, it won't last forever. It won't repair itself it will degenerate and eventually you'll need a new car. Life is actually anti-entropic. That means that whereas a car, entropy increases, it gets less and less organized over time, it breaks down and so forth. Life has the ability to actually organize and regenerate and, and work against entropy. And yes, I, for, if you have anybody out there who's in, you know, who, who studied thermodynamics, I'm not saying we're violating the second law of thermodynamics. We're not. What's happening is technically for anybody who wants to study that is that life is an open dissipative structure, which means that, yes, in what's happening is we're working off of a thermodynamic gradient. And in a small part of the system, we are decreasing entropy by allowing for a larger increase of entropy in another part of the system and we're allowing for entropy to flow out of the system. So it allows for self-organization and allows for life to go backwards upstream against the flow of entropy and be regenerative. What I'm going to argue here is that our culture, let me all the way back to where I started, our culture, our way of creating foundational metaphors and narrative about how the world works, took us into the view of the world as a machine, which turns out we now know modern science will tell you is completely wrong, but it got us down this whole rabbit hole of that being our primary means of inquiry, which meant that our model of technology was creating machines that were similarly degenerative, and what that means is, we built the entire infrastructure of our civilization around degenerative machines, and now we are surrounded by all of these machines that are sitting here cranking along, consuming resources and producing waste, and degenerating the ecosystems which they exist. It's a consequence of starting from that metaphor: nature is machine. And today, I think a huge amount of discussion is starting to emerge right on the leading edge of thought about how do we create regenerative cultures and regenerative technologies and actually address all of these things in going and thinking we got to go all the way back and reassess this founding metaphor of Western civilization of nature as a machine.
0: Yeah, I sense a theme of scientific imperialism, right? Because when yep. a certain perspective is so mainstream and put on a pedestal and glorified then Mm -hmm. that narrative that we spoke about earlier in this interview view sorts of spills over and takes over and yeah yeah, it's very interesting because as you said i never viewed nature as a machine but i could see how some people can apply that lens onto nature and that's what pattern recognition is right why did pattern Mm -hmm. recognition became one of the evolutionary psychology become one of the traits that we bestowed upon us and we became part of who we are because the more you recognize a pattern the less unknown there is And therefore, the less fearful you become. So, the more you recognize, the more patternized, the more comfortable you become. But then that's inherently flawed because just because your lens and the perspective in the past worked, that does not necessarily predict or necessarily not a good predictor of future outcome. So, it's very interesting. It it,
1: it occurs to me that maybe just giving one example might help people because I was a very sort of abstract. Let's take a look at what is that actually like an example of how that worked just talk about like how we how the field of genetics and evolutionary genetics has progressed right because here what you had was you had um physics making huge progress what ended up happening was some other fields of scientific inquiry came along and were like oh that reductionist methodology of nature's machine has been very successful in physics because there are areas in of the, certain of the early areas that physics wanted to ask questions about that was a very productive way of looking at it so by the way if, if you're listening carefully I'm not saying that that using reductive reductivist inquiry is wrong I'm saying it's incomplete that it's it's half of the story that that understanding the whole system's whole system dynamic is the other half of understanding it well so here comes genetics and we'll simplify this because you could boy you could unpack this for a lot but they, as they started to understand this concept of a gene and, you know, what a gene is nature is machine metaphor basically said, think of uh, a gene as almost like a gear in the genetic um, machinery. And so for a long time, evolutionary biology, looking at genetics, came up with all these different metaphors that built on top of that, including like uh, Dawkins and the selfish gene metaphor and everything else, where the gene was like this little cog in the wheel and it did a very deterministic thing. And because they were asking the questions from this viewpoint, if you go looking for a gear in the machine, guess what you find? You find a gear in the machine. In other words, you interpret what you're seeing in terms of that metaphor and story and they did what ended up happening was it's confirmation bias if you you know, and uh, it, it's like if you think that a gene is going to behave in certain ways because it's a machine then when you go looking you have as a human being because scientists are human beings you have this tendency to confirmation bias see the evidence that reinforces what you want and marginalized evidence otherwise. And for a long time, they did. There was this idea of, you know, that we would be able to sequence the human genome and then you could go to one of these you know, human genome sequencing companies and they would tell you what your genes were and they voila, you know what your machinery is. We looked inside of you and we now have labeled your gears and we know what's gonna happen with you and and so forth, because we now have been able to go in and look at the, quote, machinery of life and so forth. Well, it turns out genes don't work that way at all. There's this thing called epistasis. It turns out that if gene number one is close to gene number two, it will behave completely differently than if it's not close to gene number two. And there's all these complex emergent behaviors whereby it's almost like some of the things that we've, we've talked about that are genetic code, so to speak. Again, there's the machine metaphor. It's like a computer, right? It's genetic code. It is encoding of information in a recipe book, but what ends up happening is the way it actually gets expressed in the real world is dynamic, and it interrelates with what's going on. It interrelates with the environment. It interrelates with what the other parts of the genome are doing. Certain parts of the genome actually change how other parts of the genome express themselves. There's this complex network And it turns out that the dynamics of genetics is actually only understood by understanding the dynamics of the interrelationships between the genes and not the genes. And if that interrelationship changes over time, it's a dynamic adaptive emergent network that changes over time. And so now there's emergent fields like epigenetics and so forth, where we understand that what we used to model in evolutionary biology as this simple machine and that, um, the only way evolutionary adaptation occurred was through random mutations and then uh, natural selection through who, who lived and who died, right? Like, you know, fitness for the environment. Well, now we know it's a completely just a silly idea. Um, it still happens, of course, but that that is the only driver of evolutionary adaptation is completely silly. But what happened was there was this period of over a hundred years where evolutionary inquiry, as the, you know, inquiry into the process of evolution and and genetics were actively, what's the best word for it? It was actively held from moving forward because it held a metaphor and it kept on trying to push. Its interpretation of what was going on into that model. I think one of the things that's starting to happen in our understanding of science and our understanding of how to design our technologies going forward is that we're having to move past this dead machine metaphor and understand that yes, there are things that are machines, but then life is actually not. It does not meet any of the definitions of the machine. It actually has a whole different dynamic in terms of process and so forth. And interestingly to me, talking about regenerative design and helping people think about how are we gonna design our next generation of technology to be regenerative instead of degenerative, if we try to design our technologies based upon the machine metaphor, been the predominant technological metaphor for the last couple hundred years, they will by definition be degenerative and the only model we have for creating regenerative next generation technologies are these complex rich emergent systems that life is showing us how to do
0: yeah absolutely I mean there is definitely a lot there and but just some uh, show notes for the listeners is epigenetics is the concept that your DNA expression changes based on the interactions with the environment without changing the underlying genome And it's extremely powerful because for individuals who go through traumatic experiences, uh, speaking from a clinical perspective, it's, that's why I don't like the term overcoming trauma or overcoming anxiety or depression, because they are part of your epigenetical expressions. And based Mm -hmm. on how you integrate and process those trauma, they become who you are on a truly molecular level. So for anyone that's interested in this topic, I would urge just to do some more research around epigenetics so i do want to stay on this train of regenerative versus degenerative train for a bit mm-hmm. since that is your yeah. bread and butter alan of course
1: yeah. let, let me let me throw it because your your point on epigenetics is 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 really it, it's important I've, I've been um listening in on um something that jeremy lent uh, the author and philosopher has been doing on deep transformation and he uses to me what is a great um example of this and um he talks about uh, grasshoppers and locusts. He asks the question, um, what's the difference between a grasshopper and a locust? And the answer is that there are a number, many species of grasshopper, but a locust is a grasshopper. What happens is grasshoppers are solitary organisms that, you know, wander around, munching on vegetation and feeding. What happens is certain species of locusts, when the environmental conditions change, and they sense a high stress environment, they actually undergo a genetic expression transformation. Notice their genome did not change. The genes didn't change. Nothing changed. What happens is that they have this genome and the network, the organization in the network and how it's expressing adapts. And all of a sudden they go from being these solitary creatures to swarming together in huge um, locust swarms and going on the the whole idea of a plague of locusts right it's the same exact genetic individual they even physiologically change their genotype changes their colorations can change they can change physically and everything else they can go through this locust swarming phase and when the conditions change those exact same grasshoppers that became Part of the locust swarm can go back to being normal grass, quote, normal grasshoppers. And that is the way that genetic expression changes. This happens in plants, this happens in animals, um, it happens in bacteria. We know that, like, you know, bacteria uh, actually have very complex mechanisms for, like, being able to signal each other. And when there's enough of them to all get together, It's called quorum sensing. They send out chemical signals saying, hey, uh, here I am, here I am, here I am. They're listening to other chemical signals from other bacteria. When enough of them all get together in one place, they realize, hey, there's enough of us here for us to all like cooperate. And they'll like change their whole way of being. Uh, They'll create biofilms. Like when they were individuals, they would all be off individually. And then when enough of them get together, oh, we can create a biofilm and help protect each other. And they will, and they'll create a biofilm, quorum sensing, right? And so these complex things are what we're talking about and um, they are how life has become so resilient, so adaptive and so forth, something that machines typically aren't, They, they you know. Um, and it is interesting though, what's happening now is, again, since I, you, know, I, I am very aware of like the cloud computing side of things, we're actually starting to see some of this understanding of how life adaptive systems operate, some of those ideas are now working their way into how software operates. And we're starting to actually see ideas being experimented with on the cutting edge of computer science about how adaptive programming could use some of the same dynamics that life uses in order that computer programs, instead of being complicated systems, can be truly adaptive systems, and be able to express resilience and self-healing, and so forth.
0: Uh, can you elaborate more? How so?
1: Yeah. So um, machine learning is yeah, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of interesting questions that have pop, that pop up. You know, uh, when I was doing my undergrad degree in electrical engineering, one of the things that I did was uh, a, a senior project in. Artificial intelligence in the form of neural networks, and it was very formative back then. It was we were still, you know, nowhere near where we are today, but um, you know, we were still figuring out how to, to train neural networks. Um, and for people who aren't familiar with the neural networks, what it basically is is this idea of well, we've had a really hard time trying to like program a normal quote normal computer to do things like recognize images. It's a very hard task. And so can we figure out a way of mimicking the way that living organisms with neurons create networks of neurons all connected together? Can we mimic that, like get a result that's similar to life? And so one of the early ways of doing that was what was called a neural network. You would simulate a bunch of neurons being connected into multiple layers. And when I was starting to work with it it was the first time where they were really doing what was called hidden layers, where you had like an input layer where you put the stimulus into neurons on one end, almost like you put nerve, you know, sensory nerve impulses into your neurons, you know, on one side of your brain. They would propagate through multiple layers, and then the output, you would have outputs coming out the other side, and you would read out the output. And the whole idea was we could basically say, well, we want um this neural network to be able to recognize the fact that it's looking at a human face So what we'll do is we'll train it we'll let it we'll, we'll show it pictures of a lot of human faces and then we will train it saying yep and we'll it's what's called a training set this is a human face this is not a human face and we'll train it and we'll keep on training it until all of the interconnections between all the neurons get to the point where they have a high degree of reliability that when you show it a human face that They all, all these signals propagate, and on the output, you get an answer that says yes, and if you show it not a human face, that you'll put that in there, and then it'll propagate through on the output, you'll get an answer that's no. And just like human beings, it's not 100%. We can be mistaken. We can glance at something and think it's a human face, because it just, it has all the, you know, and then realize when you you double take that it's not, right? So we can be fooled. And of course we're much better at it than the neural networks are, but that's what a neural network is. Right. And so what we were doing then was attempting to take and use this complex adaptive network model to create what was called an artificial intelligence. That is, well, biologically biological organisms do this with organic neurons in the brain. Can we do that artificially? Can we, and in the beginning, we were doing it just by like simulating with math. It was a mathematical simulation of a lot of neurons. And for those who are, uh, that are in my generation that are a bit geeky, yes, it was all in Fortran, uh, the computer language called Fortran. And so we were sitting there simulating this thing and we realized, yeah, we can do this. We can train a neural network and then we can run the simulation and we can actually get better results than we would get by trying to like sit down and program if then statements. You've ever been in computer programming? Okay, well, if you tell the computer if this, then do that, and then otherwise do this, and you know do this calculation, and so on and so forth. Well, it turned out that a lot of the machine learning stuff that we take for granted today, that can do you know machine vision and so forth, guess what? It's using it's using these kinds of artificial intelligence things that are instead of being what we would call sequential Turing machine logic if then kinds of, you know, flow charty things that you can follow in a flow chart, we're actually taking uh, in in machine learning artificial intelligence, certain parts of that are taking completely different approaches to attempting to solve problems. And I'm simplifying a lot here just to get past it really fast because there are a lot of other methods in artificial intelligence besides neural networks, but that's just one example to give you an idea of what we're, we're saying here.
0: This is a fascinating conversation. I'm love everything mm-hmm. you're saying. And life is so complex beyond our rudimentary yeah. understanding. And once again, that's why we need to indulge in our own research and really answer yeah. this curiosity calls, which is the ethos of the yeah. Discover More podcast. Right. I want to uh, revisit a topic you mentioned, you mentioned in passing earlier. You mm-hmm. talked about grasshoppers, their behaviors, changes, becomes more aggro based on their environment feedback. Likewise, that's similar to group flow, right? And also humans exhibit similar behavior. A very concrete example that I think people would appreciate is like the mob effect or the mob phenomenon. What that means is on an individual level and on a psychological emotional level, a lot of people who are maybe more passive, more meek, may not exhibit any aggro or any sort of aggressive behaviors. However, under a sporting event, a lot of hooligans quote unquote in British soccer, football culture, or in the U S for a lot of riots or mobbing. When those individuals meek and passive individuals become in this group flow state, they actually exhibit completely different human behaviors. People who have never ever exhibited aggressive behaviors. Now they were more prone and more naturally exhibit such behaviors based on their environmental and it's extremely fascinating and epigenetics applies to both positive and both negative aspects. And I wanna go back to the systems and dynamic and complexity of that. And of course your trait is in systematic thinking, right? Complex dynamic systems, the way you talk about everything comes through. On the website, Mm -hmm. you talked about the biggest deficit in the current system, since with your neural networks and machine learning, we're talking about it has to be interconnected, right? Interconnectivity matters. So on that level, you talk about the current systems are peace wise smart but whole system stupid can yes. you elaborate more on that
1: absolutely it's one of the it's one of the things that um i i go into when i first start teaching design practitioners it's like this, this plays right off of that whole machinist nature thing when you go into reductionist inquiry you say to yourself oh well, the way we learn about the thing is by studying the parts and so you create universities so that people study the parts. I'm going to major in mechanical engineering or chemical engineering or electrical engineering or petroleum engineering or, right? And it's like, okay, so you go in and you study the whole system, but through a particular very narrow lens. And it allows for yes, reductionist inquiry and in, uh, inquiring a way that will teach you a lot about the PC parts, but at the expense of thinking about the whole system dynamic, but then the problem is a, you study like that. And so you are trained in your professional education to take that view of the world. And then to make matters worse, we throw you out into the work environment and we, you stay like that. Oh, you, are a civil engineer, therefore you think only in this silo. So when I'm working on, let's say a large scale project um, with civil engineers, where we're trying to repair a landscape, we're talking maybe many, many square miles. Their training in school is not to think about the wild hydrology, think about the ecology, to think about how what they're doing impacts all these other fields they're told your objective when there's a big rain event is to make certain that it doesn't flood. And since they're only thinking about that, it's like, well, obviously the solution to that problem is to pipe all the water away as fast as possible. Let's just get it out of here. Let's dewater. And that was for a long time, the default that you see, and you can go into a lot of cities and you can see this is exactly what was built into many cities in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even into the 1990s. Big, huge stormwater pipes and open, you know, concrete culverts and everything else. It's like, just get the water out of here as quickly as possible. Well, that has profound implications in a lot of other fields. It was an expedient and, you know, solution to just not having things flood during a storm event. But, it was a solution whereby the civil engineers only talked to other civil engineers and they did not understand all of the implications that this would create. They did not understand that, that your infrastructure you're putting in is actually part of a very complex, large system and it will change the dynamics of that system and it will interact in all these other ways you don't expect. In other words, because it's part of a living system putting it in there will affect the dynamics of the living system. And as a result, you will get emergent behaviors from your stormwater management system that you never thought about. And as a matter of fact, because you designed it without thinking about those interactions, it's what you would get when an intelligent person, some people are brilliant. I've worked with some brilliant civil engineers, for example, right? It's what you would get when they are thinking in what we call a silo. It's like, I am thinking only about this. If that were the only dimension that you were trying to solve, it would be, piece, it's, so it's piecewise smart. It's, it's a smart solution if that were actually the only thing that you were trying to work with. But it's whole system stupid, not because the person isn't brilliant who designed it, because they, they are. Some of them are really, really smart. It's because we trained them in a worldview in which we told them in order to get the job done as quickly as possible with the least amount of work possible to ignore everything else and ignore those complexities and therefore we and we do that over and over again right the electrical engineers are off doing that the architects are off doing their piece and this created profoundly degenerative outcomes it's like i go in and i see boy we have to we have to completely change the way all the civil engineering is done here because what it's done is it's dehydrated the landscape we're dehydrating the, de- dehydrating the landscape the whole biosphere is collapsing it's desertifying now right as it's desertifying we're actually now getting uh less plant cover on the soil the soil is now becoming erosive because the plant roots aren't there to hold it when we get a big storm event now you're getting huge amounts of silt and topsoil running away with it right and it's being carried away with it is all of these chemicals that the agricultural folks are doing because they're thinking in their own silo right and it's being carried down and pushed into our streams and waters now we have you know nutrient overloads in our in our streams and in our rivers and that's causing ecolo- ecological you know chaos in our streams and waters and then of course all that collects and where i am in my watershed it all goes down the mississippi river and out into the gulf of Mexico. And now you have this big huge dead zone off of the mouth of the Gulf of Mexico that's an emergent result of all these other things going on that you know that you did and nobody was thinking about that because they were thinking piecewise not whole systems but what's interesting to me is when you start thinking in whole systems just like if you don't think in whole systems you can create things that are degenerative When you do think in whole systems, you start to see how what you are designing can actually have beneficial interrelationships with other parts of the system, whereby what you are designing benefits the other parts of the system, and just as importantly, you benefit from them. Now we can partner with living systems and come much closer to being regenerative that is have things that really work so that's that's kind of i guess maybe the, the short form of it
0: yeah i think uh, i find the relationship between simple rules and complex rules very fascinating yeah. because i know for example what i mean by that is in world war one the infection from the wounds killed more soldiers than the actual battle itself and in world mm-hmm. war Two, physicians they came up with simple rules to discern and prioritize different patients and they was yes. able to effectively reduce the infection and death rate, mortality rate by half. And mm-hmm. that's where simple rules shine through in complex situations. At the same time, when you're dealing with dynamic systems, whatever levels of systems that may be, you have to view it through the complex rules. You cannot simplify that because life and systems are complex. And because in, in terms of the civil engineering topic, one concrete example I want to say is like highways. Like I live in Los Angeles and LA is one of the epicenters of traffic period. Yeah. And that yeah. is the detriment and the outcome of civil engineering's being piece smart with the having a lane yeah. highways, but then they don't realize increasing lanes don't actually reduce traffic. It increases right. it because yes. it's all about intersections and exit points. And that's another yes. ver- very, very illuminating example to show people, ah, mm-hmm. I see what Alan means by now because complex systems and system thinkings are extremely complex and another example that could be is like i'm a former policymaker from philadelphia i went through a Mm -hmm. career pivot into the clinical Mm -hmm. fields because i was frankly jaded by the policy and its complexity and there's a lot of soul trading for the sake of utilitarian impact i don't want to go into that Mm -hmm. now funny thing is even as a clinicians on a micro level on a clinical level i am still limited and influenced by the systems because yes. macro is comprised of micro simple yes. as that so it's very very yeah. interesting i yeah. want to i'm a bit of a non-secular so let's take a hard pivot into your personal okay. life for a second
1: okay
0: so you're a fascinating alan because once again you have this very constructionist view as a scientist as engineer by traits mm-hmm. at the same time you're so immersed in holistic health sustainability nature and i reckon The power of nature is in stillness, right? And the Mm -hmm. nature is whole compared to peace. Like nature by itself inherently is a whole system. That's Mm -hmm. why it's a living organism. That's why it's so complexity beautiful. You talked about in our qualitative process for the podcast, for the pre-interview questionnaire, you talked about your love and you were able to appreciate the power of nature early on through playing in the wild, in the forest, (laughs) back in you know, a long time ago before the world became a little bit more dangerous, you need to more have adult supervision. Mm -hmm. How do you think that this influence of nature influences and affects your decision-making as a technologist, but also as a regenerative designer that you are now?
1: Yeah, I would would actually even challenge the idea that the world has become a lot more dangerous uh, in the the sense of like this idea that there's a, you know, a predator behind every bush waiting to abduct your child kind of thing. I think that that is actually, um, in many ways, more of a, a outcome of modern media practice. And the fact that um, that sort of story is um, highly profitable, because parents uh, tend to tend to watch it. So you, you know, if a, if something actually happens to a child uh, halfway across the country, that becomes a lead headline, because they know it, it grabs attention. Yes, we have actually made the physical environment more dangerous because of the way we've created roads and and built the um, you know built the environment and so forth. I'll agree with that. I, I think it's been more of a cultural shift in perception that's created what I would call the helicopter parenting uh, problem. This idea that we have to absolutely eliminate all risk. To me, it's sort of like uh, human life. It does entail risk, and measured risk, and Children learning to grow up and become real actualized full human beings have to learn how to take small managed calculated risks and they need space to do that where they are not directly supervised. Um, It seems to be archetypal of children that they want that place to go play. That's just out of sight of the adults. And if they don't have that, then there are all kinds of socialization and self regulation skills that they don't ever fully develop so you know i grew up well, i was born in the 1960s and grew up in the late 1960s and in the early 1970s in childhood and i was at that place where you know when i wasn't in school i could run outside and go play outdoors with my friends away from adult supervision all day and you know i got my time at the point where i could ride my bike i would ride my bike off and i would be miles from home Right? No cell phones. We didn't have cell phones back then. So my parents had no way of like tracking me or calling me or whatever else. I'm off, you know, playing around the pond a mile away from my house with my friends and we're catching turtles and, you know, and and, uh, fish and everything else and and, and having direct, unintermediated relationship with nature. If I had a disagreement with a friend, guess what we had to do? We had to work it out. Right. (laughs) Um, And um, so we had time. We were time rich. We could play. We could daydream. We could tell stories. We could do this. This is, from everything I can tell, developmentally critical to an emotionally well-balanced person who can, who can regulate themselves. And I think we do a disservice to our children when we do several things. One is we take all of that time away from them and everything is a, is a, monitored, regulated um, activity for them. I think that's just a critical problem. Um, Number two is, uh, we'll go back to what uh, Edward O. Wilson, the uh, biologist called the the biophilia hypothesis, which is the hypothesis that human beings have spent their entire developmental, like, you know, evolutionary cycle being directly in natural environments our brains are tuned to process and react to and connect with the natural world and therefore you'll see that like we have stress reactions to things that are profoundly artificial and we have a relaxation and default network reset reaction to things that are natural what i mean by that that that's a it's a complex psychological term but a default network um, reset is like when you're in a heavy task and your brain is doing all this stuff and whatever, if you just literally go outside and look at a natural environment, they've done studies 40 seconds to a minute. It allows for the brain to actually kind of reset back down into a state where it's a little more baseline. It's not as, you know, sort of all wound up in its own thinking and so forth. And then therefore it allows you to, um, continue forward with more clarity in your thought, right? And we've done experiments now that show that if you have a person in a hospital trying to heal and you they, they look out the window and they can see a natural setting versus look out the window and see a brick wall, the people who can see the natural setting actually heal faster. So we have this deep biological uh, relationship with the natural world. And I think the fact that I was allowed to be out and have all of that time richness in that. And I can still absolutely remember being six years old and going out and across into the woods, across from my house, there was this tree that had fallen over and it had caused this little place that kids could climb back into just the right size, right? And it created this little sheltered space. And um, none of the adults ever came out there, right? They didn't even know this place existed. And we would go out and sit there and talk and play and so forth and i would watch the you know, lizards climb around on the you know climb around and i would watch the um what we at that point i, I grew up calling them horny toads because i grew up in florida right we have these little horny toads and they would come in and sit there with us and look and then they would go you know eating ants and so forth we would watch the ants i'm having all of this primary unintermediated you know relationship and i'm seeing all of these complex web of relationships actually unfolding in real time. And I think that was, as I said, very foundational and very formative for me. And then I run into kids that now, you know, are teenagers and whatever I'm talking to them. And I'm realizing that they had none of those experiences that their life has been defined by experiences that are intermediated through technology. And therefore they miss all that information about how the world really works. And I've noticed that i think that actually is a challenge developmentally for human beings to lack that uh, connectivity you know to me i'm i mean like when i have had people ask me what i recommend for children um my first thing is i would not let any child have screen time before seven years old they ought to be outside playing they ought to be outside they ought to be their myelization of their brain their patterning should be with sensory input coming from the complex, nonlinear, dynamical systems of nature around them. Three dimensional, right? Because we can actually take a child, put them in a functional MRI machine and put a screen in front of them. And you notice that entire regions of their brain shut down, including, for example, the region of their brain that actually processes peripheral vision. You'll see that 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 region just kind of shuts down. It's not being—it's not being stimulated. It's not being myelated, It's not being developed. That brain patterning is—is—is is, is actually atrophying. So when you take them out, they're learning to see. They're learning to hear in three dimensions. They're learning to feel. They're learning—and this is developmentally appropriate, especially if the culture supports that and values that and doesn't think that's a waste of time. And I think it's one of the problems we have today. Is it's like. You know, today I'm sure that there'd be parents who would look at how I grew up and say, well, you just wasted a lot of time. We could have had you in some sort of like training class or, you know, in some sort of like structured activity or whatever. You know, my response to that would be, please no. (laughs) Um, That is, I I think, more than being a help, that's a hindrance in, um, in developmental psychology and so forth. So, I mean, that's the way I view... The blessing of being able to grow up the way I grew up, and you know, out riding my bike and and interacting with friends and under, and, and and having um, real experiences, and yeah, I mean, I got rained on, and you know, I was outside running around when it was cold and when it was hot, and wouldn't change it.
0: Yeah, just to add a side note to that, once again, clinically speaking, adolescent psychology and developmental psychology the impact of sociality and emotionality and these free flow exchange with environment with others significantly disproportionately outweigh the benefits of introducing stem early on or helping them to learn alphabet letters those things can come afterwards we must prioritize the complexity of interactions as you said and especially when the kids and adolescents are in such a neuroplastic state that's their optimal critically developed windows and we have to tap into that I'm not a parent, but these are just uh, according to literature nowadays.
1: Yeah, I, I think the thing that to me, the rule of thumb is follow the child's curiosity, right? Feed the child's curiosity. Instead of imposing, this is my personal philosophy, instead of imposing your agenda on their learning, what will happen is their children, especially, are curious, curious creatures. That's part of just what it means to be human and be young, right? And they know better at that particular moment what their brain needs at that moment in terms of stimulation than anybody else. So when they are expressing their curiosity, feed that curiosity. When I express curiosity in learning how to read, then my mom would sit down on the ground with me and we would go through things. You know, of course, she developed that. She started reading with me the day I was born. She, um, you know, I grew up in the southeastern United States in, um, you know, in a church and uh, her Sunday school class gave us a King James Bible the day that I was born. And she started reading to me under that. By the time I could sit up, I would sit on her lap and she would read to me and she would show me what she was reading, but she would never. And then when I started showing curiosity, she started putting her finger underneath what she was reading. And then I started to develop mentally associate that. And then pretty soon I was curious as to what these things were. And then, so I was asking her, but she never pushed that. She let my curiosity go with that. As a result, I was reading by four. Um, And and not because she had, you know, reading fairly well by by four. And it was not because she had like pushed or had an agenda or whatever. It was, she had allowed for my curiosity and she would just allow my curiosity to, to go. And I think developmentally, there's a lot of wisdom in, in that approach. Um, I see when I have had the opportunity to deal with indigenous people groups, this is precisely the way they train their children. And what I've noticed is, you know, I've worked, I've, I've gotten to interact with some of these children from indigenous people groups that are like eight, nine, 10 years old. Boy, I mean, like, look at where they are developmentally and their understanding of, of things. And it's like, I don't think we, you know, I, I would have a hard time finding a, a student uh, in uh, the best, highest paid schools, you know, that could match what they're doing. And they've never been in, they've never had that. They've never had that quote structured, super expensive education. They've, they've actually been allowed to develop as a human being instead of along somebody's um, artificial agenda.
0: Yeah, there's, yeah, there's definitely a lot there. And once again, we are just uh, vehicles of information and resources, and we definitely yeah. urge people to do more research. But like I said, in terms of all these rigor and all these structure, we can always adapt into that. But in the formidable years, it's really important to let nature of children speak through. This is a weird analogy that I learned recently, but Mm -hmm. um, bear with me. It's almost like a bowling ball. You don't Mm -hmm. want the kids Mm -hmm. to bowl into a gutter necessarily. So you set up guardrails, but then you're Mm -hmm. still letting children to free reign in terms of bowl to the left or right. And they will go bounce back and forth. Eventually, they will hit a couple of pins. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what parenting, according to literature, could be is serve as high level overarching umbrella of guardrails but you're still giving children the creative autonomy to follow their instinctive call of curiosity okay. because children are the most innate, innately curious creatures period and that's why yeah. we have to cultivate our curiosity as we get older in terms of the ecological landscape in terms of mm-hmm. your observations your primary Uh, non-intermediate experiences that you had growing up that's been robbed away from many generations because of systems, technology, different circumstances. Could you talk to us about some of the observed differences that really uh, stood out versus when you're growing up in the 70s and 80s versus maybe more recently now when you look around? What are some of the observable and significant differences?
1: You mean just like overall or in terms of what we've been talking about in terms of like developmentally for kids or uh for nature
0: i mean in terms of the nature nature ecological landscape
1: yeah you know there's a um i'll I'll kind of preface that by um saying that richard louv wrote a book called last child in the woods um in which he was talking about this exact change and he he addresses in that book in, in a great deal of depth this concept that you know we had up until quite recently that my experience that I've been talking about of being able to be out and run around was, was almost standard, you know, it was standard issue in the United States of America and in many other places. Uh, Europe's been a slightly different because it's, 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 uh, population density is a little different, but they still had, for a long time, children having ways of getting out from underfoot and, and, and having these developmental spaces and having some connection to nature, but what ended up happening was that It was a combination i think of several things unfolding all at once one was how we did the built environment like you know how we patterned uh our landscape that you we started to build more and more suburban areas for example in which we mowed down all nature and we basically filled it with privatized space everything was either somebody's front yard or backyard and if it wasn't it was the park and the park was not nature it was a subjugated landscape. What I mean by that is, it had been like mowed down of everything wild, and had been made completely safe. And in that sense of now, it's just a green lawn and some, you know, benches and a couple of trees that we happen to like, all neatly manicured. So yes, it's better than like being in like a, I guess a concrete, you know, you know concrete on space but it's still not, it does not express the richness of interconnections that nature does. So I call it subjugated nature because it's, it basically reflects this human idea of making nature into a machine. It's like, all oh, that nature is messy. Let's fix it. We will mow it all down. We'll get rid of the things we don't like because we don't like snakes and we don't like mosquitoes and, you know, all of which have very critical ecological reasons for being in the chain of interrelationships. We don't like those. So we'll kill all those off. We don't like the quote weeds because we have decided we don't like those. We like grass, so we'll make the whole thing a monoculture of grass and then we'll have to do all this maintenance work to try to keep it that way because nature doesn't want that nature realizes that a grass monoculture in a temperate region where, where I live is degenerative, right? It will de- degrade the soil. And then we will only allow certain trees, and we'll prune them and shape them, and we'll make the whole experience. We'll put sidewalks through so you don't even have to walk on the grass, right? And we'll call that a park, and that's where you go for your nature connection. That's what we've done. You know, realize that when I'm saying I was out running around through the woods, that's what we called them when I was was little, right? It was wild forest. It, It wasn't somebody's idea of a park. Here in the area I'm living, we've got this thing called Kids' Kingdom down that way, which is a playground for the kids. And of course, it's this completely structured environment. Everything that they play on is a built thing, you know, slides and blah blah. And it has a child-safe surface underneath. Right? There's nothing natural in it. Everything is artificial. And it's got gate. It's got like this fencing all the way around it, and an entrance way. And what you do is the parents drive their kids there. They get them out. They walk down a sidewalk and in the gate, and then close the gate behind them. They say, now you can play this is to me, they, they, of course, all the machines are supposed to, and and devices are supposed to create an enriched environment. To me, this is an impoverished environment. Everything here is as simple and linear. The message is that you're playing in a world in which everything around you should be simplified and linearized and all risk should be eliminated. You should not be taking even managed risks so <clears throat> there you go that and I, I see that i see that that's what parents now it's like we've destroyed the wild spaces that children can walk out their door and get to and richard Lim in his book documents how that's happened we have created a culture in which allowing your child to take a managed risk will get the police called on you yes i have you know a number of friends who have they've wanted to try to raise, quote, free-range children to some small degree. Like, let the child, get, like, just go down the street. a Few hundred feet had that case where the police were called because a 13-year-old was by himself, without a parent, a few hundred yards from his house. You know, it's, and, and of course, the, the, the answer is, oh, what are you thinking, letting your child go off by himself? I'm like, 13-year-old is not a child. It is, it is an artifact of modern culture that we call a 13-year-old a child. You start seeing that at 13 and 14 year old, in many indigenous cultures, they're going through the rite of passage into manhood, and they're treated as an adult because they're actually, yes, they're still going developmentally through the ability to get into to complete uh, abstraction. But in that place, they're being pushed into starting to act like more like an adult, and they're off and they're doing things and they're going out by themselves on major expeditions. In many indigenous cultures, they're, they're try they're traveling, you know, miles and miles and miles away from home on these you know uh, uh, on tasks for the community. And here we are calling the police. So I think there's this whole cultural change in which we're not allowed, and we have to actually invent words like a free-range free, free range kid. Oh, and by the way, this 13-year-old had his cell phone on him so he could call for help if he needed it. And here I was at seven going miles away from home on my bike with no phone. My whole generation, there was a lot of us who did that. I mean, I'm not trying to be into that mode of like, wow, well, I've been good all day, so this is how we did it. It's not where I'm trying to go. I'm just trying to say that this is culturally the change. And I think that there are deep developmental differences that emerge. What I do know is that now I'm talking to college professors that I work with and they're telling me that incoming college freshmen that are arriving are not psychologically prepared to be on their own. And these are professors that have been teaching 20, 30 years, right? They're saying this has been changing. I've been watching this, our incoming freshmen now are not psychologically, emotionally, or even logistically capable of taking care of themselves. They don't know how to, they don't, you know, and every time they get into a little bit of this, they're literally on the phone home, you know, grandparent or moms or dads or whoever, right. Saying, ah, help rescue me. I think this has something to do with this whole change that I'm talking about. So um I'm not saying that we need to go and all of a sudden say, oh, let's let's just throw the, the kids out and just let them take all kinds of crazy risks. No. I'm saying A, that children should be allowed to take managed risks. Number two is we should not allow ourselves manipulated by the media into thinking that that the risks are way larger than they are, because they that is is easy for the media to sensationalize the few cases when a child you know, had ran into a problem. We need a balance, as a matter of fact, if I understand the statistics correct, I was more likely to be abducted in the 1970s than a child is today. I know that it's probably not any higher. And of course, as we know, almost all child abductions, the vast majority of them actually occur from people who know the child, like a relative or whatever, whole different story. But, you know, we get this whole thing about being, because fear sells in media. And so, uh, we get an outsized view of that. So yeah, I think is that, is that kind of addressing, uh, sort of where, where you were, you're wanting to go with that?
0: Yeah. I mean, there is no directions. It's free flow. I just pose yeah. a question and see where you take it. <laughs> I do want to introduce because contexts do matter and everything has yes. to be contextualized, like certain regions in America and in certain States, like proxy States in the middle East and et cetera there are higher dangers and risks compared to other cities. And so it has to be nuanced. But of course, I do think that your overall level is that ecologically, in terms of cultural landscape, there are significant differences between how children and adolescents behave and how parents perceive their behaviors.
1: I think that's a great point. I think obviously there are places where risk profile is high. And that's why I say we need an honest, accurate assessment of risk. Um, and reacting to that honest assessment of risk instead of blowing up risks that aren't there. And yes, there are, there are places in the world where you know there are very high risks that need to be managed. I was blessed that I grew up in a particular suburban neighborhood where the risk profile was fairly low. And uh, so I was allowed to do that. What I would say is if we run into the situation where that isn't the case, then we as a community and a culture need to ask why and ask what quality of life as part of the integrated regenerative design process in the very beginning is to define the quality of life we're trying to produce. And I think that's really, that's really, really important as a foundational thing is because, um, it, it gets past a lot of ideologies and so forth down to, okay, what's the quality of life that we can all agree on? And what I find is that when you go into a community, oftentimes people who think they have very divergent political viewpoints can at least agree on many parts of the quality of life. And then they can ask questions about decisions, like what do we all think, regardless of what our so-called political party is or whatever, of whether this particular decision will actually take us towards or away from that quality of life that we agreed we all wanted. And so that's why in the integrated return to design framework, there is this whole community dimension in which we start by all of the community stakeholders coming together and defining quality of life. Uh, also, what we call metrics of success. How are we going to define whether, if we're working on this thing together, whether it's being successful or not? Right? Um, there's a number of things like that. So what I would say is if we start realizing that it's dangerous for our children to go outside and just be in nature then maybe we all get together and say, you know, quality of life, foundational non-negotiable for us is our children ought to be able to go outside and be safe to play, enjoy nature and so forth. And now we can ask very specific questions about why is that not happening? And what would it take to create a regenerative culture in which we slowly move towards the point where that's possible?
0: Yeah. And at the end of the day, resilience requires pressure. Yes. Um, I have a quick question for you. This might not land anywhere. If so, I will take full ownership. So according to chaos theory, that change is constant, right? It's almost yeah. like the idea of organized chaos. And you mm-hmm. talked about the many cured versions of conditions that a lot of parents place their children within. What are, you, what are your thoughts on organized chaos or just the fact that change is the only constant that we have in this perceived reality?
1: it is um when i think the interesting thing is when you start moving from the machine-based i'll call it machine-centric thinking and embracing complexity what you start realizing is that machine-based thinking is object-centric and complexity thinking is flow and interrelationship centric when you start analyzing a car you start being obsessed the, the objects, right? These are the wheels, these are the, mm, the so forth. And you start analyzing all of that when you are in the machine-centric view. However, the machine-centric view doesn't work in complexity because look at a forest, right? Well, the first question you ask is, uh, what's a member of this forest and what's not? What's part of this forest and what's not? Well, there's birds that fly in and out, right? They come and they go. There's animals that come and they go. Wind comes in and brings things in and wind carries stuff out. There are trees that grow, and you would say, well, obviously that tree is a part of the forest, but you come back a hundred years from now and that individual tree is gone. The objects are transient. It's the web of interrelationships that are actually stable. It's like this forest is a thousand years old. The forest is an emergent phenomenon. Yeah, if you're in a if you're in an old growth forest, you might have a thousand-year-old tree, but in a lot of forests you go into there's not a single living thing in a thousand year old forest. that was there a thousand years ago. Every element in that forest has changed. Same thing with by and large, the material that makes us up as human beings is in flow and flux. We are literally not made of the same material that we were made of when we were children. There's almost no material left in us in terms of carbon atoms and nitrogen atoms and hydrogen atoms and so forth that were in us when we were children. So what does it mean that we are we? Well, what it is that makes me me is actually this web of interrelationships that continues to evolve over time, even as the piece parts come in and out. This is part of what it means to truly look at and understand the world in its complexity, to shift from understanding that the objects are the most important thing to understanding that the flows and interrelationships and the patterning of the events and the interrelationships are what creates this complexity and this this emergence
0: just uh that's that's amazing i love the way you talked about even us ourselves are emergent properties within this yes. containers of emergent properties and that's the complexity of that a really simple psychological phenomenon is called the objective permanence So what that really simply means is when you're exposed to a certain object in your life, sort of law of constants, like oxygen, you don't notice the oxygen. Or if you have lived in the same lavish, luxurious $10 million house, after six months, you forget that you live in a luxurious $10 million house. That's the object permanence. And it's so permanent, quote unquote, air quote, that you forget about it. So at the end of the day, what truly sticks is the emergent properties and the things that change. The, as part of the deep interconnected web that you alluded to
1: part yep. of what we call normalcy bias
0: absolutely right absolutely right? right normalcy
1: bias that you know whatever you're exposed to it's i mean you think about it and it makes a whole lot of sense to go back to the whole idea that your brain is a huge energy hog and that you're you come up with these strategies to be able to minimize the amount of like really deep processing you have to be doing constantly and the answer is from a survival standpoint If a thing is there and been there and you're used to it and you know what it is and it's not a threat, why should your brain spend a huge amount of energy constantly churning it? The brain is interested in what's new, what's changing. Why? Well, the new thing could be dangerous. The new thing could be an opportunity. It could be food, right? It could be a mate. It could be. So our brain has this novelty bias. That's why I said we have this thing called orienting to novelty. It's because, yeah, I know I'm, I'm aware of all of the stuff in my environment. I have sort of this background. And as long as it stays the same and I'm aware that, it, you know, it, that I'm, I'm, I'm not attracted to putting a huge amount of cognitive energy into processing it. But when something new pops up, my brain's immediately like, OK, pay attention to that. It is a survival trait and it's still with us. You know, we don't live in the wild where the lions are going to get us and where we have to fight for every calorie of food. At least most of most of us, like here in the United States where I am, um, you know, most of us aren't in that life anymore, but our bodies are designed that way. Our brains are designed that way. And those strategies still inform our responses to all the stimuli that are hitting us.
0: That's an amazing point that there is immense energy expenditure associated with fight, flight or freeze and every decision yeah. making and that is why a lot of people involuntarily like to preserve their physiological response by not yeah. reacting to something new and change and that's in this way it's a huge disservice based on the evolution right yeah uh, in terms of community building that you alluded to and go all the way back to the beginning of the interview mm-hmm. you have fascinating background and experiences in wildlife tracking fire making wild crafting bur language I don't even know yeah. what's that about, but, <laughs> but one of the things you also talked about is through your exposure and commitment in herbal medicine, you became a mm-hmm. holistic health advocate. And of yes. course, indigenous communities is a huge pillar within this nature, yeah. within this community, especially in permaculture and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, for someone that's watching our video, you, you've alluded to and you talked about indigenous cultures and communities manyfold. They might be thinking, mm-hmm. who is this random white guy talking about indigenous culture with such deep passion and knowledge? Yeah. And even for me, right, because we just met each other fairly recently, mm-hmm. what is your fascination with indigenous community and what have they taught you so far in terms of your commitment towards regenerative design and permaculture?
1: Yeah, well, I had somebody um one time ask me a question like this and I basically said, please remember we all come from indigenous ancestors. And an indigenous person sitting right next to me, she looked at me and she said, thank you for saying that. Because I mean, okay, to, uh, you know, when I start teaching, we start off by acknowledging traditional ecological knowledge. It's one of the things we do because it's very important. But then I, you know, I, I have this reaction when people turn and go, oh, you're this white guy. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, you know what that means? Let's back up and say what that means. That means that I had indigenous Irish and German ancestors that were indigenous to place at some point in time. And then Western culture came along and actually deindigenized them. And then what happened was they came along and literally there was a moment in which this culture came along and said, we, your culture is a threat to our culture and we're taking over. You're not allowed to tell your, your stories. You're not allowed to sing your songs. You're not, all the things that were the holders of culture, they're stripped away from you that creates trauma right there in that moment, you cannot go into a community of people and strip their culture away from it without causing trauma. But what we know is that when you create trauma, it's a it's a pattern that can reemerge. And so it's not unusual for people group that's been traumatized to turn around and traumatize somebody else. This can happen on in individuals where we know that a person who has been traumatized by abuse can, if that abuse is not dealt with properly, turn around and become an abuser because they are actually replicating this pattern. It's like they have this coping mechanism. How should I put this? They have never seen a way of coping with the situation other than the thing they had modeled to them. And so when they get into a situation that's similar, they don't know what to do. They find themselves subconsciously replicating the model. It's the only one they have. So what can actually happen is this can actually happen on cultural level, I figured out. And and a number of people I've worked with that, that study culture say the same thing you can get a traumatized culture and it turns around and it it actually then turns around. So what I see is that we had this wave of deindigenization that spread as a wave of trauma. So I have ancestors in my lineages, both my major lineages that have the trauma of being, having their indigenous relationship with place stripped away. And then the same trauma of a couple of a generation or two later, turning around and doing it to another people group. So the indigenous people that are left on the planet are having that done to them right now. So there are two groups of people on the planet now. There are those of us who have had it done to us in our previous generations, and then mostly turned around and replicated that and have the tra- both traumas. And then there are the people who are just experiencing the trauma of having it done to them now because they're kind of last in line. We kind of like now have the last indigenous people that are being de-indigenized and having this done to them. And what's happening is that there are people out there who are looking at what it means to be a human being and how communities work and so forth. And they're pointing at some of these indigenous communities and going, look, there's patterns of human interrelationship there that are profoundly functional. They do things beneficial that our other cultures that we're looking at don't and we're about to lose that and what's interesting is that people that have studied this in some depth will tell you that those patterns have a lot in common that is that since we're all human beings that there are certain cultural patterns that emerge over and over again what's unique is the way in which those patterns express themselves for that people group so it's like because they live in a particular place they live in a particular environment One of the things, just to give a concrete example, one of the things that pretty much every indigenous culture you run into has is um, a set of greeting customs, how they greet people and bring people in that are visitors, or if somebody's been away and coming back, they greet them back in. And um, how it's done varies tremendously all over the planet. However, what you'll find is that functionally, all of them are doing a few things. They're all... Like they they are the way that that particular people group has figured out to do certain things. There's certain important um, social functions that greeting customs serve. Um, when you start looking at indigenous cultures, to me, the proper way of doing that is not to say, Oh, look at their practice. We're going to adopt that that's cultural appropriation and it's not appropriate. What is to say is that's interesting. Why do all these different indigenous groups do that do some version of this thing? You look at it and go, oh, it's because human beings are like this. So what that tells me is we need to take care of that human need. How is it appropriate for us to take care of that human need for our group? Right? Not by going and grabbing some practice from another people you know, another group of people and appropriating it, but by realizing that we all are human beings. All of us have these traumas we're trying to heal. All of us have problems now that you know, have been perpetuated through poor cultural practice. Almost every culture that we have left has all kinds of problems that are perpetuated into it. And now what we're trying to do is look at and think about how to regenerate a healthy culture. We're looking for examples of patterns. We need to recognize and honor that some of the expressions of these patterns are, cultural knowledge that are specific to cultures that should never be appropriated. But on the other hand, we need to get away from the idea that some of us are, you know, like fundamentally a different kind of human that are broken forever and that there are some of us who are less broken and that's, you know, no, it's like all of us come from this complex emergent stream of history We grow up into the culture we do. We're enculturated into it. We inherit traumas from our ancestors and through the patterning that comes down to us. And now we have this very complex system of cultures that have all interrelated. We start to realize that there are a lot of very destructive patterns that are perpetuating and pushing forward. And we're asking, how do we do something better and how do we look at and identify patterns that are still somewhat functional and then regenerate those while being very careful not to appropriate anyone's culture. I think what's interesting is, you know, I, I've, I've studied, um, by, by doing some of the cultural study with different groups like the Shield Institute and so forth, um, I've had the opportunity to interact and have some of these cultural exchanges with different indigenous people groups, uh, with the Haudenosaunee peoples, uh, with the um, some, some of the, lineage of the Lipan Apache peoples, from the um, Lakota Sioux peoples, uh, from the Muscogee peoples, and so forth, all here in what the continent's now called North America, and to be able to have some interactions with them, some of them fairly deep and and so forth. And it reminds me of of a treaty that the Haudenosaunee people made with the Quakers when the Europeans were first arriving, right? And that the treaty, I won't get into it in depth, but the treaty was, that they said, well, you know, we have our canoes and you have your, your longboats. boats. Um, this is the Haudenosaunee's words for it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to go into it in depth because it's not my story to tell, but just to kind of give the idea of the treaty they made, they said, you know, we're both going down the river of life together. And it's the same river. It is good for us to occasionally come together and tie our boats together and talk across the transoms and exchange information about what we are learning and the challenges that we are facing in our communities and how we're dealing with them, and you know, and these sorts of things, because as humans, it's it's that sharing is beneficial. That knowledge capital is actually multiplied by sharing. Because if our neighbors are doing well, we do better. So this is a this is mutually beneficial. And then when we get done with that sharing, we can go our separate ways and we continue to live our lives. I think part of the treaty was, we don't climb in your boat and you don't climb in our boat. In other words. If we share cultural practices that we are doing to solve a problem, that's not so you can appropriate our culture and go off and do the exact same thing. It's so you can go and say, wow, that's a human problem. They're solving it in that way. It's appropriate for them because of their culture and because of their place and the way they live. Okay. How do we solve that problem in a way that's appropriate for us and the way we live and for our culture. So we can share and we can learn from each other as cultures. We can honor each other's cultures and backgrounds. We can understand each other's woundings and traumas. The fact that some of us bring all kinds of things to the table that need fixing, that all of us are broken in some sense. Uh, None of us are ideal because we're complex creatures Um, and that we can have these discussions. We can honor that without appropriating each other's cultures and we can then back up and in our own communities have a discussion of what's the appropriate way for us to address this problem and um and find through our own creative path how to do that
0: yeah i appreciate that once again you want an in-depth perspective and i just want to highlight this one more time that it's really important to lean into cultural exchange but not cultural appropriation because through a free exchange we can eclectically collect what's serving within the container of human species and i and I, there are some other mammal groups that do this well too but of course humans yeah. do this the best where we are concurrently both individual entities at the same time we honor the wholeness of humanity yes. because like racism is of course very endemic and is horrible and it's stupid and bill and i did this way better than i could but in this quick real I think a couple years ago he talks about race is just a reflection of skin pigmentations right yes Uh, but at the same time that that's not to say that there are no racism there 100 percent is and similar what you talked about cultural appropriation exists however we can through intention do it beautifully through just exchange of ideas exchange of these universal human characteristics that manifest in everyone and with that i want to make a self-pivot because i see some connection points where you also have background in martial arts, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, For 30 years, you've both practiced. You have a third degree black belt and Taekwondo. That's what you started with. And you eventually Mm -hmm. mixed into different martial art traits. And you also started instructing after your certified instructor. I think mixed martial arts is similar to what we talked about. There are that cultural exchange components. What I mean Mm -hmm. by that is different martial art traits have different schools of training, different schools of philosophy and different techniques. Right, Rolling is mm-hmm. different than kicking, for example, yep. at the same time, I think martial arts does that really where it's also eclectic. They take what's serving in certain other profession without appropriating them because it's still mm-hmm. about context. You have to contextualize mm-hmm. the techniques. Um, so I like to ride the train to see where you take us, where mm-hmm. how do you view that on a martial art level where you're seeing the repopularizations of martial arts because of YouTube celebrity matches because of USC just becoming more and more mainstream, which is awesome to see as enthusiasts myself as well. So where do you see that interaction between martial arts within the profession, but also individually?
1: Yeah, it, to me, it, it's, it's a, it's a microcosm of the macrocosm of, of all of human culture to look at how martial arts have evolved. Hmm. Um, and, and the reason for that is like, you know, we, we just talked about cultural appropriation and, um, but then again, there are things that have become, I guess what we would, I would call human intellectual capital that they're that are part of the fact that human beings have information that I would, I call it uh, cultural, cultural identifying information that has to do with the symbols and the stories and the language and so forth that give you a cultural identity. But what's interesting is that if you look at the history of human beings, we are master remix artists. We pull all kinds of thoughts and concepts and we remash them and we create new ones and so forth. And so much of what we have as a legacy of human innovation is the product of this thousands of years of remixing and, uh, and so forth. And the same is true of martial arts, uh, the same is true of culture, the same is true of music. You know, we could take the same conversation over to music and talk about how jazz emerged and how many different places it came from, you know, and it's its, its own emergent thing. It has its own culture, but boy, it, it pulls from all these things. Martial arts and, the, and the, the lineage of martial arts has done the same thing. It came out of many different people. And by the way, to me, when I say the word martial arts, uh, there are European martial arts. There are South American martial arts. There are Asian martial arts. Most people, when you say martial arts, think Asia. Because of course those probably have the largest mind share. And in some ways that has the largest set of interrelated systems. And in, in many ways, some of the, um, the many we'll say call it the largest population density of complex systems of martial art, right. But it was, they were developed out of, uh, this cultural thing of conflict. In other words, in the very beginning, they were practical. How do you defend yourself against your enemies? There was that, but the whole thing was now you were ending up with large groups of people that were trained to be able to kill each other, Let's be honest, right? And if you created large numbers of people who were, uh, trying to kill each other, and you did not have some sort of balance to that, you might just run run into a problem. So pretty quickly, a bunch of other things had to come into the situation. You had to have a balance culturally in teaching people to be a warrior and define this term warrior to mean not a person that just goes off and indiscriminately attacks and kills people because you can, right? You had to build some dimension of restraint and control into that so that people would think and reflect upon when was the appropriate time culturally to use what they were learning. And so what you start seeing is that there is an emergence quite early in the history of these martial arts in defining a bunch of complex philosophical dimensions to what it means to develop the body to be able to conduct violence against other people. And so martial arts in that sense, when you start looking at it as in its complexity and its completeness, actually isn't just a set of physical techniques. It is a set of physical techniques that actually have been developed along with a set of philosophy. And what ends up happening, interestingly enough, is the philosophy and the physical techniques actually feed each other and different strains of martial arts evolved as different philosophies evolved. You know, I studied Aikido for a good many years and you realize, like the very first martial art I started with was a, a form of traditional Taekwondo out of Korea, and and that was what was we call a hard style, which means it's you know bang bang, you know direct force on force, um, so forth. So that developed in Korea with a with a, with a very particular set of philosophical dimensions. There was uh, a group uh, of, uh, of warriors. Younger warriors in ancient Korea who called themselves the warong. And they had this, developed this philosophical system of what was the moral and ethical uh, dimension of using force. And they basically had a code of uh, conduct of, you know, using their skills to protect and to build the culture. In Japan, there's a concept of, uh, I remember, make sure I get this right, Jinsen, I believe is the way it's pronounced the sword that gives life, this concept that, you know, there's a sword that brings death and there's a sword that brings life. And that if you, you should be a sword that brings life, that you have this ability to defend and to create a safe space in which things can, those who can't defend themselves can be protected. So what I find fascinating in studying all of this is that every martial art has its philosophical dimension that, and, and that's its way of setting into a culture in a beneficial form and and the the methods of training even started to evolve. And I've had people come and ask me, well, don't you worry that if you teach somebody this martial art, they will just go out, you know, and, and, and and get into fights and, you know, hurt people. And I'm like, I'm not too worried about that because what it turns out is the training methodologies that I, I learned to teach, they kind of filter that out. People who come in with that, with that intention, they don't get very far. They leave. Because there is this, it develops, you have to develop an ethos of work and of self-control. Yeah, there's a lot of that built into the way that the whole thing, is, or the way that the, that the training space in Korea, it's called a dojang in, in, um, in, in Japan, it's called dojo. The, the training space, how it's operated and the formality of it and so forth, it's built for all of that. And so here you come. And what was interesting to me was when I first started, a lot of that was brought over from Korea by my first instructors. But as I think we talked about uh, one of the early times we discussed some of the aspects weren't in this cultural setting in which the mar- these martial arts that I originally learned came up, there was healing and self care that went along with it. And that was not brought in most cases over when it came with these, you know, over to the United States. And so I grew up for a while learning. I, I was trained in this traditional way, which included having to build the self-discipline and build, An ethos of how do I use what I'm learning to build and protect instead of to destroy, to be that sword that brings life? How do you do that? But at the same time that was being done, the healing part wasn't in there. And so we're doing all these very, extremely aggressive, high impact moves that are murder on the joints, right? So the time I'm like in my late 20s, and I've been doing this very aggressively since I'm like 11, you know, I'm starting to have joint issues and so on and so forth. I had to actually transition. I started transitioning over into some of what we would call the internal uh, martial arts, like Pakwa and Yi and uh, tai chi which are, have and they, they bring in a whole different philosophy. The philosophy that's behind it is very different. It uses much more circular, indirect motion. It has a tendency to redirect and intercept. I, I kind of got into that after I did Aikido. I actually started Aikido in my early 20s. Um, you mentioned that, yeah, I, I got up to third degree in taekwondo and I stopped. And then I went over. What's interesting to me is people ask me, what's your rank You know, after this many years in these internal martial arts? And to me, it's an interesting because in some of the hard styles, they came up with these formalized, almost militarized ranking systems. That's where people are familiar with this whole idea of belt colors and multiple degrees of belts and being called master and so on and so forth. What's fascinating to me. Is that my instructors that i have worked with in in the internal martial arts that i've worked with that come from china for example if you ask them if they're a master first of all they kind of give you this funny look and then they'll say master is something some that everybody else calls you not something you call yourself
0: Hmm.
1: and they don't have belt tests they they, they think it's a funny idea the reason was that you realize that that belt tests and martial arts are a fairly new innovation they actually were created in the early 20th century um, where they started to standardize and try to teach martial arts on a large scale. Up until then, there were there was no such thing as, you know, a white belt and a blue belt or whatever, and then you got up to a black belt, uh, that didn't exist. And so especially this idea of a master, you know, the very traditional, uh, systems I've worked with, yes, it's changed some in more modern, uh, Asia, but in the, the, the more, the most traditional people that kind of come from the old, old lineages, they, you know, will not call themselves a master. And they also say by the way that true martial true martial skill should be hidden. It's not something you go around and show off and are flashy about.
0: And that's like the true warrior mindset, right? Exactly. I am curious, could you elaborate on why do you think that certain components and aspects of the martial art philosophy and training were not carried over in terms of the self care and healing component? Because just for some context, we talked about it offline about my background in psychedelics mm-hmm. therapy and a lot of these cultural appropriating tendency associated with psychedelics for people to get on these metallic jackets of airplane flying across mm-hmm. the world to immerse in that specific contextual and cultural healing. Even though it still heals, there are ecological differences and cultural differences. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of these medicinal, even holistic, quote unquote, since the buzzword of holistic medicine is so saturated and diluted now there are aspects where it's not quite right or contextual to that person yeah so on that note why did certain aspects of martial arts got carried over but the really important the integrative the healing Mm -hmm. the restorative aspects were left out
1: and it comes back again it circles back to this whole thing that it's a bit of an oversimplification and and i don't want to create a, a cultural cliche here but much of the thinking that you find in Asia historically was more towards the whole system's view instead of the reductionist view. If you look at the development of philosophy in China through Taoism and so forth, Neo-Confucianism and so on, you'll notice that uh, their whole approach to inquiry was much more process and the whole systems oriented. So that system created advances that didn't happen in reductionist thinking dominated cultures and vice versa. So there was a divergence in, in this. But what happened was that there was this systematic way of thinking about humans as more of a whole being that needed to be cared for as a whole being. And so you would think about the impacts of training in martial arts on the whole person, emotionally and physically and socially and everything else. This would be, this is just because this was the way that that culture tended to hold its narratives and think about things. And so you bring that over to um, a culture that doesn't think that way. It's dominated more by a piecewise approach. And people are like, Oh, that's cool. Let me go learn that thing. Well, what that thing is, is one thing. It's like how to kick butt, you know, I'm going to go learn how to fight. I'm going to go become a badass. That's, you know, and, and so what they started, we started seeing was you have these people coming over from Asia. They're like, oh, we want to make a living by teaching what we've, you know, what we've done. And um, so they started doing this and they started realizing that they had a hard time connecting on certain, in certain ways with their, the, the people that had grown up, say in uh, you know, my experience here with martial arts courses in the United States, there's complexities in all the other continents, but my experience is, is mostly here with all the people I've trained with being here. They're coming over from Asia, in my experience, into the United States. And the people they're finding there are they don't have like a um, frame of reference for some of the things that they're talking about. And so they start to realize that, oh, they just want this part. That's what they're going to pay for. This is how I can make a living. So hey, in sorry. some ways-
0: quick, uh, quick interruptions. Just so I get this right. You're saying that a lot of these maybe Korean martial artists or instructors when they first migrate to the U.S because of the limitations of the container, they can't yeah. quite get paid for or even promote these restorative practices.
1: Right. Yeah. And they, they also didn't have the cultural support for it. Right. I mean, some of these practices, you know, they integrate with other people that are the other practitioners, you know, health practitioners, traditional, uh, you know, traditional health practitioners and, and so forth. They were part of an integrated culture. Now they're here. They don't have that support of the culture around them. And the culture they're coming into doesn't have a frame of reference to understand that whole systems thing that was happening. But they're here, and they're trying to make a living, right, and feed their families. And they start realizing that all these, you know, white people keep on showing up, and they're interested in this one thing. That's what they really want to talk about, and what they want to do. And so I think it emerges, right? When I showed up, I when I first went in the door, you know, here I am, like, 11 years old, and I've grown up in suburban Florida. And so you can imagine I've I've internalized certain things from that culture that I've grown up in. And because I'm just curious, it was, I was curious about the culture that was coming from and the way that they thought about the world and the, the instructors are working. They, they were actually started to, you know, try to help us understand parts of this bigger picture. Typically not when we first started because it was typically once you had gotten up a ways and had shown that you were more interested, that they started to like, yeah, okay, now let's start talking more about the philosophy and so on and so forth, because a lot of your you know, people walking the door, they weren't ready for that or they didn't have the interest in that. And um, so I had to actually dig a little bit in my teens to start to understand the philosophy and the symbology and everything else that went along that had driven the way the techniques were um, actually executed because there were symbolic reasons to the way that, that the patterns were put together into the, into the forms and everything else. Um, that reflected the the philosophies of the culture that had created them. And um, there were stories that went along with that. Then as I started getting into other martial arts, it it deepened, and it had, to, it, it had to broaden, right? And then I just ran into it after 15, 20 years of doing the thing that, yeah, you keep on doing this uh, without the healing modalities, and it's going to hurt. And uh, and so I had to start looking into the healing modalities to go along with it and actually get out of the, um, that it turns out by the way that it, you know, what I would, I would say is if you're going to do a, um, hard style martial art your entire life, then you have to keep on doing it. And you have to bring some of those healing modalities in, because if you don't, when you stop, um, a lot of what you're going, you start to build scar tissue and it starts to like lock things down. And I had, I went through some of that when I had, uh, I did something, I hurt my, one of my knees and, then I, I had to back off for a little bit, and then it kind of like boom, it, you know, regressed into the scar tissue, and then I had to go through this whole process of remediating that. It was it was a mess because you know I didn't I didn't have all of it. Then boy, I better go find out. And so then all these other, of course, me kind of being an engineer and practical, I like, well, this has been going on for generations in Asia. How do they deal with it? And so, boom, off you go on, you know, oh, well, they have this different view of how to keep people healthy, uh, which is don't just wait till they're broken and then try to fix them, but instead try to do things that uh, promote the person over time, being able to maintain vital health. Now, I guess one other thing I would just mention, because we, 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 we talk about this, I guess it's an important point, is, you know, you mentioned um, entheogens, that is you know, some of the, the psychedelics and so forth that you have, you're interested in working with. Um, therapeutically. And one of the things that I was told from uh, my various herbal medicine teachers was that the the plants of the place are the plants that provide the medicine you need. So I think in our earlier conversation, I wanted to presence it here in this conversation, I think it's an important point, is that um, I'm not a big fan of people from North America flying down and doing ayahuasca ceremony. When people ask me, should they do that? I'm like, that is a medicine for those people in that place. And they have the cultural container for ayahuasca. There's several things. One is that is medicine for people who live in that place and in that environment. It has an energy to it that is correct for that. And then there is a culture in which doing ayahuasca is a catalyzing moment, but it's the beginning of a process. It's very important the rest of that process play out. And that culture has a, a fabric to it that allows that whole process to play out so that it becomes a healing process. So, Hey, I'm going to get on the, you know, the people who say, Hey, I'm gonna get on an airplane, fly down and have ayahuasca for the weekend and fly back and be back at, you know, be back at work on Monday. It's like, a you're using plant medicine from the, that isn't from your place. B you are going and having the catalyzing event and then actually not being there for the working out of the process it can actually be more harmful than it is productive because now you don't have any assistance in the working out of what you just catalyzed. So I see that every time I've run into a people group that has a healthy relationship with an entheogen, that it is in a cultural context, it is something that is of place, that is it grows in place, which means that the plant that is producing that suite of phytochemical compounds is actually reacting to the same environment you're living in, a biological entity in the same energetic environment that you are in as as an entity and then they've created a cultural container in which this experience can play out and be supported and be healthy and so what i would say is if you want to play with an entheogen then if you ask my personal opinion i would say is that entheogen of your place and is there a cultural container around you? to allow you to take that catalyzing experience and have it actually have people help you uh, process and synthesize and integrate that experience
0: yeah i'm not going to go too deep into this because i have an upcoming interview with a founder of the psychedelic research center that he is working with indigenous healers around the world to provide the experience without breaking too much into the container that you alluded to but yeah. just for listeners out there, if you're listening and you have tried microdosing, or maybe you have played with these substances recreationally, or if you had the opportunity to dabble with it clinically to derive the most healing aspect of this medicine. The medicine itself, as Ellen alluded to, is just a catalyst. The healing comes from integrations and processing that requires facilitations, guidance, and etc. So just something for people to think about, but I will go into this much more details with the upcoming guest down the road in June. So in terms of both, whether it's the psychedelic, contextual, and cultural container we've been talking about, or the martial artist's guiding philosophy, either or, but I'm more interested in the martial art aspect since I know way less about that. What do you think are some of the maybe dominant or important philosophy from whichever school of philosophy they've dabbled with through martial art that can apply to our life? Because I do Mm -hmm. think that philosophy is bi-directional and we can always transfer a perspective, some other things to view life through.
1: Yeah, that could be a very deep and long question. I think I can pull a few things. Um, you know, I think one of the things that was important to me, even in the very beginning, when we started uh, learning about competition and doing competitions and so forth, was the concept of victory being um, personal victory. What that means is when you're in competition, that the way you should view competition, you know, when you're like in a tournament or whatever, is that, that the person that you are competing against is actually it's actually uh, cooperation not competition what's happening is you are both cooperating with each other to allow you to challenge yourself and your own limitations Hmm. so it's not i am you are you know my opponent and i am trying to beat you there's a there's a mindset that goes with that it was more of you are my partner in this competition and we are going to compete and we're going to try to actually score on each other and so forth. But in that process, we're both going to learn. We're both going to push our own limitations. We're both going to improve and therefore no matter what the score is at the end of the round, if we both, worked our way through the process. We both were present for the process. We both were trying, we're both learning. We both take away from it. We both have a personal victory because we come out personally stronger and having developed our skill more when we get done. So um, it's an interesting twist on this idea of cooperation versus competition. And there's a lot of more nuanced versions of that through a lot of martial arts. And the idea of this development of self and the philosophical self, uh, as being uh, the ultimate goal of martial training. That, um, like I said, there are people who came, you know who come in to me to you know when I, they first come in the door to be taught. They're like they don't say it out loud, but they're like, "Hi, I'm here to learn to be a badass." Right? That's that's sort of their yeah. their thing. And you know what you say to yourself is they'll either change or won't they won't last because of this philosophy that's been built into the way that we do training if you're doing it right. And this is kind of one of the problems I have with mixed martial arts. I have no problem with synthesis. I think that synthesis is good and it's how all martial arts have been created in so far as I've seen some people, not all, but some people teach mixed martial arts with sort of the swagger factor in there that it's all about me learning to kick ass, pardon my French, that can actually, to me, in my experiences, be detrimental to a person's development as a whole human being. Because it does not put that physical development of the ability to hurt people into a context in which there is deep reflection and thought about what's the proper use of that. And how can we take that process of self-development and self-discipline and use it primarily for self-improvement and to create a self that we find more admirable, that we ourselves are prouder of what we have developed instead of, Oh, look what I can do. I can go out and meet people up. Right. And so to me, my question about a mixed martial arts system is that what, what is it doing? Is it creating and developing a whole person or is it just down on this one thing and can I destroy my opponent in the ring and then gloat when I'm done? That to me, I have no interest in that. That is not at all of interest to me uh, as a martial artist. So yeah, I think that's maybe the the, the best fast version of that I can give.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I, I think about the concept of creativity over competition a lot. And I think collaborations over competitions is a subset of that, a topic that I've been thinking a lot about. And to your point, a lot of or most world class martial artists or martial artists, whether it's UFC, boxing, they are the most singly humble and grounded individuals. Because there's also the interesting idea about induced acute stress physiologically, psychologically, when you are beaten down on the mat or when you're rolling, it humbles you. And I think yep. individuals who are at the world class level navigate the container of martial artists through the exact perspective you talked about that, oh, this is an experience of better myself through a physiological containment of martial artist Avenue. However, the integration comes and manifests in life and you have to navigate that, whether it's martial artists or life or engineering. You um, know,
1: that's, that's a great point. I think you're bringing out something that is, is very true in my experience, which is you get different tiers of people there's a tier of people who you know have a certain level of skill and and are a bit um you know full of themselves and whatever however uniformly the people who have reached very high levels of skill are humble and gentle actually in when you know and so forth i think it has to do with that fact as you're saying there's several of those aspects that are all rolled in there there's also just the fact that if you're full of yourself, that there's just certain places you won't go and there's certain levels of, it's it's hard to put into, some of it's hard to put into words, but I've seen it on the training mat over and over again, where it's like the people who are in it for that, just, as I said, being able to just go out and beat down people, it's like a self-limiting thing. It, it, it hits a ceiling and they just, they don't push to get better than that. That is why if I see someone who is really bragging and self-promoting and they claim to be a master i'm very suspicious immediately because there's a ceiling practically that i've seen over and over again that people will hit um if they have that attitude
0: yeah it's like the statement that your that your teacher shared that you alluded to earlier Master is a recognition bestowed by others not a self-recognized token and similarly i'm very spiritual by nature i'm also a christian by practice and whether it's spiritual gurus, we have these perceived cultural perception of what spiritual guru look like with long beard and maybe wearing some sort of uh, headings. Right. And but true spiritual gurus, quote unquote, since that's uh, mm-hmm. a large, A lot of people are allergic to that term nowadays. They will never self perceive themselves as guru. These are the honor, just like respect. You cannot purchase right. respect. You cannot yes. ask people to respect you. That respect is earned. Simple as right. that. Right.
1: Um, yeah, you earn respect by respecting people.
0: Yeah, 100%. It's,
1: uh, it's very interesting because in, in that whole martial arts training thing, when I first started out, we were, you know, uh, you call the black belts and instructors, uh, sir, and you call them by their formal name and so on and so forth. But when you bow to them, they bow back. And one of the things I was taught very early on is that you can't expect for anybody to respect you if you don't respect them first. You know, one of the first teachings I had was if the brand new white belt walks in to greet the Grand Master, they bow to the Grand Master and the Grand Master bows back. It's reciprocal respect. The, the Grand Master being where he or she is, where they are, you know, at that point in the path, realizes that there's nothing different between them and that beginner, except that the beginner is on the first step of the path And they just happen to have been on the path longer. And therefore, there's a reciprocal respect, you know. And I I did get a chance well, training with one of my first grandmasters. He said to us, he said, the most important people are the white belts, the beginners. And he said, the reason for that is simple. No white belts, then our art dies with us. Hmm. If there are no beginners, then our art dies with us. So there you go. It's, you know, it's very interesting. You start working with some of these cultures that think more holistically, their stories tend to be more cyclical than linear nature is machine. Cultures tend to tell linear stories, you know, beginning, middle, end cultures that think in terms of whole systems tend to tell stories that are more cyclical. They also tend to tell stories that are more we centric instead of I centric. And so think about right there, what in that one statement that the white belts are the most important. That is a we centric because it's talking about, it's defining what's most important in terms of the whole culture, not in terms of one or two people. And it's defining and it's understanding and it's not saying it's all about my journey from beginning to end and then I die. No, it is the cyclical culture that continues to regenerate itself and therefore the white belts are the most important because without them there is no regeneration so this is again where our metaphors and our narratives completely construct the way we tell our stories and the way that we all these things work out they all are articulations of these underlying metaphors and narratives
0: Yeah, just a quick side note to that. There is a popular, um, I guess, clinical or therapeutic modalities called NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. And that is their ethos of trying to rewire our certain narratives that we tell ourselves and the others because those narratives in a high level do subconsciously influence how we behave. Um, And I really, really love that white belt story because that speaks to an MD MD canvas mentality. Like mm-hmm. In the Bible, we talk about to get to kingdom of Christ, you have to be like children, similarly. Yes. And I think in addition to just if there is no white belt, the art dies with us. I think more importantly, yeah. it speaks to the idea of biases. Because you can be a master or grandmaster, which is the highest honor bestowed to the most senior instructor in the room. You go through repetition of life, repetition of behaviors, repetition of idiosyncrasies, right, on and on. And it creates implicit and unknowing biases that the instructor is unaware of and whoever's been a red belt or brown belt or black belt they're also equally unaware because they're still in the same system but white belts are the only individuals who have no biases and right. clinically we talk about and you alluded to this earlier in the tech world there are a lot of biases in the coders because they their opinions and their biases getting coded into the programming that wants to execute yep. their commands and yeah. the best way to bet against biases is have empty canvas mentality. In this mm-hmm. case, happens to be white belts. So it's very, very symbolic in nature as well. Yeah, this has been an amazing conversation Alan. The, such a vast, vast and encompassing conversations, which is reflections of who you are. And just like what your instructor or the grandmaster taught you that we need white belts and we have to bow back to white belts, that's the mindset that we need to strip us the essence of human beings away from the accolades away from these external decor, so to speak. So I have a question for you. It may not land, but I just want to try it out since it's similar to the theme of this conversations. How would you describe who you are without saying what you do?
1: Basically I would, I would say that my goal is to look at whole systems to understand those processes by watching them move and flow, and to join in that dance and co-create with them. As I design everything now, more and more, I've come to think of it that way, which is that if you, the idea of designing a thing is, uh, again, it's a machine thing. I am the creator. That is the machine I created. Everything rich that is living and regenerative, you can't actually design that from the ground up. What you can do is you can jump in the dance and help co-create it. It's like the difference between building a car and growing a garden, <laughs> you know, can you control your garden? No, if you ever try growing a garden, you can't control it. What you can do is you can co-create the garden, but there's a lot of other opinions. There's the opinions of all the plants and there's the opinions of all the bacteria and the opinions of all the birds and all the animals and all, you know, all these things and you are co-creating, you are helping to create the conditions for emergence. You are watching, you are interacting. This is why I'm writing the book Observation for Design. It's like, if you're going to design regeneratively, it's not this imposing structure where you impose your will on a thing, but instead it is you observe what is emerging and then you co-create patterns. We talked about design being repatterning of flows of information and energy and matter and so forth. And so, you know, if I had to sum it all up, it'd be like, well, uh, how can I jump in and be part of the dance and have my part of the dance help co-create the most beautiful emergent patterns possible?
0: Yeah, I mean, your system thinking shines through every single response, and I really appreciate how dynamic it is, pun intended. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's similar to, once again, in a spiritual sense or clinical sense that we are not just the Mm -hmm. stories we tell about who I am we are the Mm -hmm. stories that we tell about ourselves. We get to co-create the stories and narratives we navigate this life or this container of life through together. Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there are shining examples and upsides to individualism. But by and large, if you look at history and culture, collectivity or collectivist philosophy or collectivism has tend to produce more uh, benefits that benefits more than just individual container, but for others Uh, And I do also believe, and I talk about this on the show often, oftentimes, if you don't have certain characteristics, certain genetic traits, certain privileges, access, and you may not be able to ground yourself, but then you can lean on your tribe and your village because I think grounding takes a village. On that note, as we are coming to the end of the episode, I want to hit you up with the signature hallmark DMP discover more question. And the question serves as twofolds. So fold one, it's my challenge to you, Ellen, after this very, very curious and encompassing and vast conversations, what is some area in your personal life or professional life that you want to discover more about? And the second fold is what is an area in our respective listeners life that you want to encourage to discover more about after listening to this extremely nuanced and insightful conversation? You
1: know, the first part of the question, I guess, is what, you know, what am I Discovering and really it's the conversations that I've been having with you and other people here recently have really reinforced the the direction that I've been going in trying to really think about and discover more about life as a process. You know, going through engineering school and and and, and working with people today that are very competent engineers, and it's like there's something very deep and beautiful about life. Hmm. And um, There's something about trying to take the life out of life, you know, like trying to look at it as if it's just something mechanistic and mechanical. So my current things that I'm taking forward is this idea of, as I continue to consult and design and build things, what does it mean to actually create living designs? I mean, by living is that they fully participate in this whole dance. It's something that over the last year I've really deepened into thinking about it in that way. And I'm spending a lot of time and effort right now and engaging with people to try to have that conversation and learn and so forth. So I sense this when I have this conversation with people, they find it very exciting and very engaging. And this conversation and other conversations like it has really reinforced to me that this is a important direction. And I've also noticed that a lot of the younger generation I'm talking to, it resonates with them. And um, I, I kind of feel that there's this collective intelligence emerging from some of the, the lower, the younger generation that um, we need to do something fundamentally different in order to have a, a better path forward. So I would say that. Boy, I think it's actually hard to give advice uh, to listeners because uh, you have no idea of where they are in their journey. You know, so you've got to almost back up and be very met up with it. you got to be... because. What is something about the the patterning of lives that is fairly universal that you could kind of throw out there to a very diverse audience and have it kind of land? And I'm, you know, I would think backing up and looking at your relationships with your community, your culture, your place with nature, with technology, and asking yourself, what's the quality of life I really, really want to be moving towards? And How are my relationships with all of these things either helping or hindering that? And then what would it look like to improve those interrelationships and ways of relating and ways of thinking and ways of being so that I can move forward towards quality of life that I want? And I think for most people, that's also going to include the quality of life for their family and their, you can't just improve your own quality of life uh, in isolation. You either bring your, your family, and your community with you, or you typically don't go very far. So if I were to ask for some sort of reflection, it'd be like, maybe sit down and really write out for yourself a definition of quality of life. Um, and the attributes of the, not like, well, I want a new car and I want to this or whatever, or I want a nice home. That's not a quality of life. That's a means to a quality of life. If you find yourself writing down like means to a quality of life, then stop and ask yourself the question, no, what am I really trying to get with that thing? If I want to be able to have a nice house, what am I really trying to get with that nice house? What's it, you know, What's the quality of life that that's, I'm trying to get out with them. And that will help you get out of the whole thing of, of being stuck and trapped in thinking about means and so forth. And what I talked about earlier about helping people, you know, look at quality of life, that's part of facilitating that process. Cause usually they start off with the articulating a bunch of means that they perceive will get them there instead of truly digging into the quality of life.
0: Yeah. Just a quick underscore that we are talking about, and Ellen is highlighting the quality of life, not system of life and of Mm -hmm. course there are a lot of atrocities and oppression out there so a lot of folks out there have to focus and prioritize sustainment of their life but Mm -hmm. if you are hearing and listening to our podcast the chances are probably privileged enough that you can focus on the quality aspect that ellen is alluding to and yeah that's something that i will also be pondering myself upon this interview as well Mm -hmm. but with all that said ellen it's the time for me to roll out the red carpet for you for you to share i know you have exciting works ahead, you're also building a Discord server, trying to create on the technological front end to create something for the nature, for the actual world. So uh, please feel free to share information, your social, your website and everything else that's on the horizon for you.
1: Sure. What I would, uh, I guess what I would say is that I've mentioned this thing called the integrated regenerative design framework. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning, a, a part of that called the biocompatible design standards. That's me getting to the point of realizing that I got to help train whole teams professionals to be able to do what we're talking about, to engage using this you know, kind of approach, whole systems approach. And so I've been over the last few years uh, in the process of working with a lot of other professionals to create this integrated regenerative design framework. It's still emerging. We're still piloting it. We're still doing work on it. We have a website that's still very much in being built. As a matter of fact, we kind of paused on it just a little bit because we're right in the middle of so many revolutionary things. So there's a little bit of a description there. If you're really intrigued by what that framework is, there's a little bit of a description there. That would be at the website i and the number two rd.co. And you can kind of go there and hopefully I'll get some time to continue to add more goodies to that website as we come up, especially as we start to bring trainings online, there is a uh, mailing list you can sign up for there and so forth. If you're in the professional design fields and you're really intrigued by and want to know a little bit more about what we're doing, then you can definitely um, connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. And uh, I have just started to build a Discord server uh, because there's a lot of people wanting to have this conversation. So it's just getting started, and if you're really interested and want to be part of that conversation, there's a possibility to talk back and forth. I can send you an invite. You can jump on the Discord server and, and discuss with us and so forth. So that's kind of how I'm starting to engage. As we go forward, we'll be you know rolling out the formal classes and, and the formal trainings and professional design certifications and all the things, and that will probably be rolling out over the next two years or so. So at this point, we're right at that uh, inflection point where it's starting to become a, a wider conversation. And we definitely are inviting a diversity of views and so forth into the, the discussion.
0: Awesome, and yeah, to all the listeners listening, I think a big shining squirrel of this conversation is the concept of web of life. And even the terminology itself is called web of life because it truly is interconnected and complex web, requires Collective contributions from many individuals across professions across age across culture And that is going to help with the inflection point you alluded to as well moving forward Mm -hmm. But yeah, I really appreciate this conversation ellen and to all the listeners out there Thank you so much for writing this week's train of discover more sticking with this long and very insightful and encompassing and depth of conversation and as always, I will include all the information, all the resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes below. And you can find this episode anywhere we listen to your podcast. And by the time this episode is released, it will also be available on YouTube as well. And as always, thank you for discovering more with us this week and see you again next time. Thank you.